Hey, this is Matt Markin, and it's time for episode 52 of the Adventures in Advising podcast. In this episode, we interview Isabel St. Joy from Valencia College, Dr. Tony Lazarovich from University of Nebraska-Lincoln, and Casey Gregerson from University of Minnesota Twin Cities. Subscribe to this podcast and follow us on Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, and Facebook at Advising Podcast, and YouTube at Adventures in Advising. Now let's get to episode 52. How are you, my advising friends? Welcome back to the Adventures in Advising podcast. A lot has already happened so far in 2022. We've hit $19,000, almost at $20,000 at this point. And we just celebrated our two-year birthday of the podcast. And as cliche as it sounds, time has flown by. And I can't thank you enough for sticking with this podcast. And there's a lot more planned this year. So get ready. And one of those is we now have podcast merch. Yes, there is an online store where you can get your own Adventures in Advising t-shirts, hoodies, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and stickers. Head on over to our website, adventuresinadvising.com. And at the top of the page, click on Merch. So let's talk about Nakata. Are you planning to go to the annual conference in Portland this October? If so, have you considered submitting a conference proposal? You know, I come from this viewpoint that we all have something to share. So if you don't share now, when will you? And from having the idea of a proposal to writing your proposal to creating and presenting at the annual conference, it's a journey I encourage you all to take. Pre-conferences are a great way if you want to be ultra interactive with your audience, if you want something more informal, or if you want to get your feet wet in presenting, a poster session might be a good choice. Concurrent sessions are nice for a one-hour presentation. And then there's even submitting a proposal as a panel or scholarly paper session. And in times of budget constraints, that seems to be happening a lot. Getting your proposal accepted could give you that extra push for your institution to approve you attending the conference. And from personal experience, it's been one of the best ways I have grown as a professional, and that is by presenting. So the submission deadline is Monday, February 21st, and that's at 11 to 59 p.m. Central Time. So really think about submitting, and I'll be there. So I would love to also attend your session and learn from you. So get that proposal submitted. And let's get into our first interview, and that is with Isabel St. Joy from Valencia College. So up next, we welcome to the podcast, Isabel St. Joy. Isabel is an academic advisor at Valencia College in Orlando, Florida. She works with students both in person and online as they work to complete their general studies degree. Her first job was with the Boys and Girls Club of Central Florida, where she realized she wanted to work with students. She has worked as a front desk staff at the University of Central Florida while earning her Bachelor of Science degree in Health Services Administration. She brings more than five years of healthcare administration experience to academia. Even though Isabel did not pursue a major in education, she knew her heart would take her back to working with students at some point in her life. She has worked as an academic advisor for almost three years and serves on various committees at Valencia College to stay engaged and learn more about the students and staff on campus. Isabel, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Matt. Thank you so much for having me on. Um, I've been listening to Adventures in Advising podcast for just a couple of months now, and I was like, you know, it would be awesome to be interviewed one day. So thank you so much for the invitation to do so. Yeah, and we connected on Instagram, 
And you had mentioned that you had listened to one of the episodes with Dr. Mercedes Butler, and that really connected with you. So can you talk more about what it was about that interview that you enjoyed or how that connected with you? Yeah, absolutely. So I just found her to be extremely compelling, right? She actually moved me to action and made me feel like, am I really doing enough as an advisor? Like there were a lot of elements of that interview. Um, I think that encouraged me just to remain engaged with work that I do. Um, and just to remember, you know, things shouldn't be transactional, right? We should really be impacting our students and along the way, think about our own growth too. Um, she had talked a lot about Nakata and getting involved. I think she'd actually mentioned like, you know, submitting proposals. And although I'm not a member yet, um, it's something that I've been thinking about. And I think a lot of that stems from um, just her voice and her rationale that it's really, really important just for all of us to stay involved um, and really to think about our students, but think about our personal growth too. So love that. Yeah. And Mercedes, yeah, she's on our Region 9, Nakata Region 9 Steering Committee, uh, our Nevada liaison. And yeah, she's just a wealth of knowledge, has a lot of great ideas. And she did um, two we call them talk stories for Region 9, uh, but they're like more like a webinar presentation based. And she did two of them on um, on the same day for conference proposals and was really, you know, wanting to share her experience of how she, how she came from the idea to actually uh, submitting the proposal and got a lot of great feedback. So, I mean, definitely she's all about wanting to, to help others share her experience and, and to be able to connect. So I'm glad that that worked out with, with that interview. And if you, anyone listening hasn't checked it out, that's on episode 44 of this podcast. And that one's titled Finding Inspiration and Motivation. So thank you for sharing that. And um, can you tell me more about Valencia College and how you would describe that? Yeah, absolutely. So for whatever reason, they said, hey, Isabel, we want to hire you in May 2019. I had no advising experience, um, but I knew I wanted to work with students. And I'm sure we'll talk about that at some point, how I actually got here to advising. But Valencia College, oh, man, um, we have several campuses all throughout Central Florida. Um, and I think that's really wonderful for our students, right? You don't have to just go to one school and then like that's the main school. We have so many different areas. Um, each campus kind of has its own flavor. Um, a lot of them also have their own specific uh, degrees that they offer fully from that campus. Um, so for instance, our newest one is downtown Orlando and we have our wonderful pastry um, and baking programs that are offered through that, um, partnered with Disney. And so it's just great for our students because that's where they can really network the best. Um, you know, when we think about our East Campus, they do all of our arts and entertainment. Our students are so talented. I know students in general are talented, but our students, Valencia College, I got to put uh, hats off for them. But just in general, you know, I would say working at Valencia has been a really positive experience for me. Um, we're kind of going through some changes now, and that's always going to happen with an amazing organization. Um, but myself, I am working there as an academic advisor. So I work really with our general population of students, students who know what they want to do for their bachelor's degrees, students who have no idea. Um, and then also the other side of our advising um, includes our career program advisors. So they're helping students getting their associate in science degrees um, or getting one of our fabulous bachelor degrees. So just in general, um, you know, Valencia offers a lot of different opportunities for students either to direct connect to our partner university, uh, University of Central Florida, Go Knights, um, or, you know, just to kind of stay here and finish up their degree. 
Um, but I really love the fact that we are so uh, versatile. We're kind of everywhere um, for our students. And then, of course, kind of being able to offer that, uh, whether it's in person or online, um, I think has been great for our students as well. Yeah, and especially location-wise, where you're talking about there's these connections like with Disney. So that's really awesome. So mm-hmm. that sounds really cool. And, you know, many institutions, I mean, we're recording this the very beginning of February, and many institutions have kind of shifted and if they were on campus and now maybe they're um, virtual or remote for a little bit. I know for our the university I work at, we are um, uh, remote with our classes until the middle of February. Has has things changed uh, any at Valencia with that? You know, I would definitely say, of course, in 2020, we all made that big shift, right, all into online. Um, and then for a good while, we pretty much remained that way. Um, really, when I think about fall 2021, I would say that's when things started opening up a bit more for us. Uh, we did start offering some of those in-person sections. Um, and so since then, right, we're kind of in spring 2022 now, um, we've increased that even more. So we offer in-person fully for some of our classes. Um, some of them are still online. So we know that that's been really, really helpful for our students as well. And we don't want to just take that away. Um, so we certainly have done that. We even have um, what's called real-time virtual which I think is just incredible. It gives students kind of that sense of discipline, right? Because it is via Zoom um, and you're expected to be in class, right? If it's Monday and Wednesday, 1 to 2.15, you need to be there signed in. But it's from the comfort of home. Um, So for our students who are still feeling like, you know, I don't feel totally comfortable being in a classroom again yet, but I want that discipline of knowing Professor so-and-so is expecting me. Um, our real-time virtual, I think, has done that uh, in a really, really helpful manner. So a little bit of everything for us here at Valencia across all of our campuses. Yeah, nice. And based off your bio, I'm really interested to hear about your journey because it seems like the roles you've had, although maybe not necessarily directly uh, connected to academic advising, have really actually prepped you for your role as an academic advisor. Yeah, absolutely. So I always like to think about not necessarily the career change that I made, um, but I like to think a little bit before that. So when I was in school as an undergrad student, um, I was at the University of Central Florida and I was working on my bachelor's degree in health services administration. Funny enough, while I was working on my degree, I was working for Boys and Girls Club. And that's when I knew like I, I should be working with students why am I not an education major? But you know how that goes, right? Sometimes you have external voices kind of saying, no, like this is the direction you should go in. Um, and I had already said, well, I, I don't want to be clinical, um, but I still want to be in healthcare, I guess. So that's kind of where that major came from. Um, when I was in my last semester, I was in my internship and I had the amazing privilege of working with one of our larger hospital systems uh, here in Orlando. And they said, hey, Isabel, we know you're graduating soon. Do you want to come on board? And I said, yeah, why not? You know, I was kind of thinking about what's my next step uh, once I graduate. So I started working in the same place where I did my internship. But right before I graduated, I emailed my own academic advisor. And a lot of people don't know this part of the story. Um, But I emailed my own academic advisor and I said, hey, I'm graduating soon. What would it take to be an advisor? And I'm sure that she was like stumbled when she saw that email because I really enjoyed my major. I had nothing bad to say about it. 
um, she responded and she was so sweet and so encouraging. And she said, well, that's a great idea, but, but don't you want to work in your field? Like what you just studied and what you just finished? And I said, yeah, but I, I kind of want to talk to students about my experience. And that's when I knew, like, at some point I'm going to work with students. At some point I will be in an educational system working. Um, you know, she gave me the, hey, just kind of work in your field, see how that goes. Um, but what kind of felt like a barrier at that time uh, was the fact that she said most advisors at the university level have a master's degree. And I was like, well, I don't have that. So I guess this is done. And I just kind of put that idea to rest um, and I left it at that. I did not think about getting into higher ed once I started working in the healthcare administration field um, because I was always busy. You know, I was an insurance verifier for some time. Um, I was an office coordinator for our minority business development office. And then the last role that I had in healthcare was as a credentialing specialist. So you can imagine there are a lot of parallels between that, right? So I love that you said kind of the roles I was in prepared me for what I'm doing now. Um, I was just fascinated by helping people get through some really, really complicated processes. Um, becoming a physician is one thing, getting employed as such is another. So being able to walk these clinicians through these processes, make sure we have everything in place. I'm like, there's got to be another role that does this, right? <laughs> um, and then I was starting to get into that point where I was six years into working in healthcare. Because I wasn't clinical, I think I started doubting how effective I was. I started doubting, like, how impactful is the work that I'm doing? Um, and I'll be honest, I did not feel fulfilled. And that's the reason that come, wow, August 2018, I said, I'm going to do something different. You know, I have no regrets about the major that I pursued. I have no regrets about the almost six years of healthcare administration experience that I had. But I just needed to do something that made me really jump for joy when I got up in the morning. And um, yeah, August 2018, I said, you yeah, know, we're going to do something different. Um, I did not have a plan. So that's the one thing I always remind myself and I remind my students, if you can have a plan, um, <laughs> it doesn't necessarily make it easier, but sometimes that makes you feel a little bit more comfortable with the big leap that you're going to take. Um, so I, I left and I said, well, let's think of something different. And I started volunteering. Right. I just started kind of getting myself out there. Um, I did volunteer at some hospitals, some other school institutions, and then I became a substitute teacher. Um, I cannot tell you how many advisors that I've spoken with who have kind of gone like in that same direction mm -hmm. where they thought maybe I want to teach. And that's kind of where they started. Um, I always like to talk about my substitute teaching experience because it was very short lived, but I actually got to substitute in the same district that I grew up in. So I went to my old middle school. I went to my old high school, saw some of the teachers who taught me. Um, and that was really my way to just decide what did I want to do in education? Um, did I want to teach, you know, at the secondary level um, and get my initial teacher certification? Did I want to do something totally different? I really liked that. Um, substitute teaching was interesting. <laughs> I think all of us can remember some of our substitute teachers. I took it very seriously, though. So as far as I was concerned, I was your teacher. I was not your substitute. I was your teacher for the day. And so I was very diligent when it came to lesson plans and just thinking, you know, what would the teacher of this class want to have happen today? Yeah. And that was really, really helpful because 
it allowed me to realize that's not what I wanted to do every day. Um, it, it just wasn't. I knew I wanted to teach and work with students, but just not necessarily at that level. Um, what was also great about being a substitute was the flexibility with my schedule. So I could pick what days and times I was going to work. And if I did have another job opportunity come up, I could just be like, all right, I got to go to this. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's exactly what happened. So Valencia College was always on my radar um, as kind of an institution that I was interested in. And I just started applying. So I would apply for any and everything that I could find on their site. And I applied for a role and they called me and said, hey, Isabel, we'd like to talk to you. I went and I had the conversation. There was a presentation component to it. I was feeling it. It was great. And I didn't get the job. So needless to say, I was a little bit disappointed. But some folks that were on that hiring committee said, you know, you didn't get this job, but would you be interested in being an academic advisor? And it clicked. That same experience that I had when I was in my undergrad program, I said, I wanted to be an advisor then. Someone is asking me now if I want to be an advisor. The answer is yes. Um, The nice thing, too, is that since Valencia is a state college, um, they did not require a master's degree. So just a bachelor's degree, preferably in psychology, education, all the things that I didn't have. (laughs) Um, Right. And I went in and I said that I, I said, you do realize I don't, I don't have the paper that you're looking for. I, I don't have that, that particular major. And they said, that's okay. Um, and I just kind of really focused on the fact that even though I didn't study that, I knew that this is what I wanted to do. Um, and so of course they said, all right, we'll talk to you. If we have some interest, I said, okay. And I got called for the second interview and here I am. So almost three years later, um, I started in May 2019. So almost three years later, I am here and I love it. Um, This is exactly where I should be. So working in higher ed has been the best thing for me um, and I love it. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Cracking the college admissions code just got easier. I'm Rebecca Gordon, your go-to fictional college admissions counselor for the rich and famous. Tune into The Admissions Game, Satire Edition, and uncover my top secrets for sure-fire Ivy League admission. Ditch the old Photoshop your face onto a water polo hunk trick. We reveal all the latest loopholes. So laugh and learn with The Admissions Game wherever you podcast. Yeah, I knew I was going to like this story. (laughs) I knew it. And, and there's so much in there, you know, even kind of talking about when, you know, you're getting your degree, you talk to your academic advisor. They're like, uh, are you sure? Because, <laughs> you know, for them, it, it was probably like, I, we've spent so much time, you know, talking about this one major, going through classes, making sure you were on track. And then now you're thinking, I, I want to do something else. Mm-hmm. But it makes me think of, you know, even when I was a student or students that I meet with where you know, we, we expect them to declare a major when they, when they start at the university right? and then, you know, and they're just coming, most of them just coming right out of high school, you know, mm-hmm. and they really haven't experienced much or really gotten to test the waters with things. Um, and, but for you, like you knew at that very end when you were graduating, like, I, I want to do something in higher ed. I want to do something as an academic advisor. And then to go into health services and be in there for six years but in the back of your mind, always thinking like, 
I want to be doing something with students and working with students. And then kind of got to that with the substitute teaching, but then eventually got to what you, in a way, kind of almost like truly meant to do, you know, being an advisor. Um, And it just made me think even with the substitute teaching, like you have, you're going in, you have, you know, maybe 30 some students per period. And how many of them are, are taking it, you know, oh, we have the substitute teacher. Uh, let me be serious. And, you know, I'm going to learn something versus, oh, they're just here for the time being temporarily until the actual teacher comes back. Um, how was that w- with with the substitute teaching? Like, um, like, did you feel like you were able to connect and engage with the students or was there, you know, did you feel like there was some pushback from some students? Yeah, I, I absolutely love talking about my experience with substitute teaching. So I was very intentional and I would only pick classes that were either the middle school or the high school level and specifically English classes. I absolutely love English. Um, it is my favorite, favorite subject. So English language arts, I think in some cases they also called it reading. So in that sense, I felt like I had a lot of control and I could go in and not feel like a fish out of water, right? I would never pick a math class to substitute for because (laughs) if you ask me a question, I don't have that answer. So um, I felt comfortable going in, right, for those English and language arts classes. Because remember, at that point, I was thinking, I'm going to become a teacher. I'm going to become a teacher at the middle school or the high school level. So let me just get some practice. As far as pushback, um, yeah, of course. You know, there are students who who come in and that's what they're waiting for, right? They're like, okay, yeah. Mrs. So-and-so is not here today. It's a sub. Um, I actually didn't allow them to call me a sub, right? Mm-hmm. No, my name is Isabel, um, preferably Miss St. Joy. So yeah. you have to set those parameters. And I think once I was able to do that and kind of gain their respect and a lot of their trust too, right? Trust me to actually continue your education today. Um, within the first five minutes, either you have it or you don't not going to lie. There were some classes where I didn't have it. Right. And that was just maybe the structure of the class or Mm -hmm. uh, just the the combination of personalities in that class that day. Um, But for the most part, I would definitely say um, once I got into like my second week of picking up classes, I was really feeling it. Um, I was very, very happy that there were some teachers who reached back out to me and said, hey, Isabel, could you come in and sub my class again? I'm going to be out on this date, you know, and we would love to have you back. Um, I was intentional also in the fact that I just wanted these students to know, like, it doesn't matter who's standing at the front of the classroom. You know what you should be learning today. Um, And we're just going to continue that. We're just going to make sure that you're getting everything that you need. Um, I'll never forget one of the classes that I substituted for. um, And I substituted several times. I think about three or four times that I went in for this teacher. He had some workshops that he was going to. And he was like, hey, I know this is coming up. Can you be available? Um, And it was actually for an international baccalaureate English class. And I was in IB as well in high school. So that was like, oh, yes, I can't wait. Um, And he would actually send me that information ahead of time and say, hey, this is what they're going to be going over. And I appreciated that so much because I could go in and really just have all of these tools in my back pocket to continue their education. Um, That was the biggest thing for me. You know, I was in there. um, We were having class discussions. I was asking them, what did they think? What did they learn? How important does this feel to them? You know, what do they think might show up on an exam moving forward? How are they going to apply this to their final IB exam? So I really, really just made it a point to just 
be the teacher, right? Not be the substitute teacher, but just be the teacher. Um, and these are also students that some of them wanted to build a rapport with me. So if they saw me again, substituting for another class, hey, Miss St. Joy, right? I told them at the beginning of class, hey, you just have to remember one name. You guys know each other, but I'm going to do my best to remember your names as well. So I think when we go into any situation where we're working with students, just reminding them of their value, right? Reminding them that they are valuable, their education is valuable and being super, super present. Um, so to answer your question, yeah, there are a couple of classes that I'm like, I, I'm not going to get through to these young people today. Um, but there were a lot more classes where I did feel like there was an influence um, and there was a level of empowerment for me, like just kind of that confirmation, you should be talking to students as well. Like this is what you should be doing. So, yeah. Yeah. And then how much of that translates into academic advising, like the, the trust, the building rapport, mm -hmm. being in the present, asking yeah. questions, having those discussions with them. And I know a lot of your points of interest with advising uh, revolve around developmental advising and empowering students. How do you feel you, you implement that um, with your students? Oh, well, as an academic advisor, so a general academic advisor, I do not have a cohort. Um, so I do not have students who are assigned to me um, who know, OK, Isabel is my person. But I do have a lot of students who maybe after that first conversation with me feel really comfortable um, and end up coming back. Right. So making another appointment with me or maybe the first time I met them was virtually and they're like, can I meet you in person? I'm like, of course, yes. Um, so when it comes to the, the developmental side of, of advising, being a listener is so, so important. Um, being a good listener is critical. I think when we get to the point where we're not listening just to respond, right? We're listening to actually help you get through something. Um, I think that's what students really, really appreciate. Um, and especially in the virtual world that we've all kind of been thrown into, it is so, so easy for us to get caught up in, I'm just going to give you the answer, right? I'm going to give you the link that you need, or I'm going to give you the piece of paper that you need. But there's that extra element of like, that student just shared something with me that maybe they didn't have to, right? They shared a hardship um, or they shared something that has just been bothering them, right? Or or something they're really excited about. So it doesn't always have to be that we're listening for the negative, but I think just being a good and effective listener um, has really helped me to, to just make sure that when I respond to students that I'm doing so in a way that is comforting. Um, and I think that's a lot of the reason that even though I don't have a cohort, um, I've got more students than I can count who are in my inbox um, <laughs> and on my schedule of appointments. And I'm all for it. I love that. Um, that makes me feel like I am being effective. Um, and I think that's one of the things as an advisor that no one really teaches you that part. No one really mm -hmm. teaches you that feeling and what you need to do to get to that point of feeling effective. We can talk to you about the catalog. We can talk to you about, hey, this is when to give an override and when not to. But that element of this is how you become effective, you learn that over time. Um, and I think one of the biggest pieces has just been being a good listener. Yeah. And I think that listening piece, though, it's, it's something we always have to focus on every day. Because I think sometimes we can just go through the motions and, you know, nod our head. But in our mind, mm -hmm. we're thinking about, I need to get this email done, this project done. <laughs> And then you're, the student's halfway done answering, answering your question that you initially asked. And you're like, what did they say? And then you're trying to put the pieces together. So, it's, yeah, it's very much being very intentional and just kind of having that daily reminder that okay, I need to be in the present and be this active listener. Because, yeah, my student might be saying something that 
I didn't expect, but they're they're sharing something personal and maybe I can help them uh, with that. Yeah. And I um, also thought about, because you know, I've been listening to every episode that I can <laughs> now, um, Eduardo Mendoza. Oh, yeah, my boss. Yeah, yes. Yeah. When he quoted Maya Angelou, mm-hmm. I said, this is the best <laughs> podcast ever. Like it was already the best, but it was like the absolute best. Maya <laughs> Angelou is my favorite writer. And he mentioned um, her very, very fabulous quote. People might forget what you said. People might forget what you looked like, but people will always, always remember how you made them feel. And if you are a good listener, I guarantee you're going to make somebody feel so good. And that's why they come back. Um, And I, I, that's a big deal for me Uh, because again, as we have become more virtual, it has become just so much easier to almost be passive um, and almost in some cases, maybe be dismissive. That is not what advising is about. Um, I've had this conversation with friends of mine in um, advising as well. We have to make sure that it doesn't become transactional, that we're not just at a store and you're purchasing an item, you're giving me the money, I'm giving you the receipt. We have to really think about all those pieces in between. And I think just listening and remembering how people are going to feel when we do give them that feedback, um, very, very important. So, yeah. Yeah. And so I've known Ed for over 18 years. And from the very beginning that I've known him, he's always brought up that quote. So mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, he definitely like lives and breathes that quote. And, and it's, it's one where like, I'm glad every time he brings it up, because it's, to me, like, I might lose focus. And then to hear it, I'm like, okay, why am I here? You know, why, mm-hmm. why am I in, in this position? Why am I uh, with with these students? Uh, yeah. So it, it's it's definitely a, a daily reminder of sorts, and but yeah, it, I, I like how you were talking about the transactional terms of uh, like like a, a, a going into the store purchasing something, you know, because there there are going to be some of those where a student's going to walk in, and it's like I just need that form, you know, yeah. and it's like cool, got it. But for a lot of it, you know, it could even be just asking that question of like, oh, so tell me more about why you're looking for this form, and mm-hmm. that might turn into a, a different conversation, and then it turns yeah. out hey, there's this other form you might need as well, or maybe schedule an appointment and we talk more about this other situation. So exactly, yeah, a lot of it's just, you know, asking that initial question and you, you could have a totally different conversation. Yeah. yeah. Now, do you also work with dual enrollment high school students? I do. So uh, Valencia College, of course, has several different campuses. I happen to be on the Lake Nona campus, so if you're ever in the area, hello. Um, But yeah, we are right next door to Lake Nona High School, and they are pretty much always here all the time. So we have the largest dual enrollment um, student population at the Lake Nona campus. Um, So yes, working with them is fantastic. It's a very different um, dynamic sometimes, but wonderful population of students for sure. Wonderful. And speaking of working with students, so you've done various workshops and presentations for your students. And uh, two of them I wanted to highlight and talk to you about. Uh, one was called, um, it had to do with imposter syndrome. So it's called imposter syndrome, the voice saying you cannot when you know you can. Um, how did that uh, workshop come about and how did that go? Yeah, absolutely. So you're referencing one of our skill shops at Valencia College, which is just a fantastic opportunity um, for our staff and our faculty to just kind of talk to our students about all things non-academic. That is like a very, very strict rule. We're not talking about catalogs, things in here. Um, But yeah, that particular workshop, oh boy, that stemmed, I'm going to be honest, but this is a safe space. 
that stemmed from my own feelings of imposter syndrome, um, my own kind of battle with, I'll say it again, right? Valencia hired me as an academic advisor and I didn't have the specific piece of paper that they were looking for. So even though I've been in this role for a while, um, there are instances where I feel like, uh-oh, is someone going to find out like I'm not a real academic advisor? Um, and that was important for me to share, even with our students, you know, Sometimes they may have these wonderful aspirations, things that they want to do, big dreams, and they can. They absolutely can. But there's that voice saying, maybe you can't, or maybe you think you can, or maybe you think you can start it, but there's no way you're going to finish it. Um, So that was very, very important for me to share with our students that you've got to fight against that. And in doing so, you can't just do it alone, right? You're going to have to really put some effort into creating those positive voices that are going to be louder than the imposter syndrome one. Um, You have to really be mindful. There will be things that you can't do, but it's not because you can't do them, right? It's because you can't do them yet. It's because maybe there's that additional step you need to take. Um, And I think that's a big part of fighting against imposter syndrome, reminding reminding yourself um, you just have to work hard. Whatever it is you want, just work really, really hard to get there. But sometimes there are times where you need to just reevaluate. So I think a lot of our STEM students, you know, I want to be a doctor. I want to be an engineer. Perfect. Let's talk about how we get there. There will be times where you realize maybe that's not the direction for me to go in. So that's very different than imposter syndrome, right? Imposter syndrome says you can't do something that you absolutely should be. Realizing, though, that maybe I need to make a change is very different. Um, And so I I really wanted to just focus on that piece um, and remind our students that you all are wonderful rock stars um, and you can do anything. And you just have to have other folks that are in your corner on your team. Yeah, because I think the voices on both sides are always going to be there. But it's like you're saying you want the the more positive one that's kind of going to be louder than Mm -hmm. the the negative voices. But it's it's knowing that you're going to have someone, you know, it's like the angel and devil on the shoulders, you know, and each person is going to tell you something different. But going back to, to Ed, my boss, you know, he's always said, you know, any skill can be learned, you know, yeah. it's just finding someone that will teach it to you or learn it on your own. But you can't really teach being a good human being or someone that cares, you know, and those are going to be those, those skills that you really kind of have to already have. And then you can learn everything else on the way. Yeah. And, you know, so with you, with this particular um, uh, workshop, you know, you, it was, you know, it was about like, is the major right for you? You know, are you considered college material? And, you know, you kind of then connected it to like, even based off, you know, your own experience. So now you've been an advisor for almost three years now. Um, do you feel you're still dealing dealing with that or it's not as as much as it was uh, three years ago? Yeah. You know, I always feel like imposter syndrome uh, tends to be very residual, mm-hmm. right? So you can get to a point where it's not as strong, but I definitely feel like there are instances where it just kind of creeps in. It's like, hey, you sure you can do that, Isabel? Um, so I definitely would say it is not as strong and that voice is certainly not as loud, um, especially as I kind of just develop my own advising style. Right. Um, and as I think more intentionally about how do my students view me? Right. Because 
if I'm thinking just about how I view myself, I'm always going to remind myself, Isabel, you don't have the piece of paper. But when I think about my students, right, when I think about my peers, those who are working with me, how do they view me? Do they view me as a resource? Do they view me as effective? And so when I think about that, um, it helps so much um, just to kind of have that reminder that I, I, I should, I could do this. I should be here. Okay. You know, and I think that helps. And it, it just reminds you that even if you feel like you're not going in the right direction, keep working on it. Um, and there are skills that you can learn. Uh, there are skills that you can always get better at too. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cause I know exactly what you're talking about in terms of like, it'll creep up on you. Um, and I know for me, a lot of times when that happens, I'll think back to when I started as an advisor in 2013, cause I almost quit within the first month because I came from admissions and you know, it, and that was more transactional, um, mm-hmm. I would say, with with a lot of what we were doing. It's like, okay, review transcript. Do they have requirements met? Admit, deny. And you might meet with the student to go over requirements. But um, we never really went past that in terms of like, well, tell me about you and what you want to do and blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when I got to this position and one of my first few students was, you know, they're dealing with so many issues at home and, you know, these you know, negative things have happened. And I'm like, Oh my God, what do I even say? I don't know. Yeah. Wait, what resource do we have on campus? And, you know, I felt like I got an F on that appointment, you know, <laughs> if, if I had to get graded. But then it made me learn okay, if I'm in this situation again, what are some things I, I could say and learn? And a lot of it was just, you know, as I went, then I'm learning from experience, but then also setting in with other advisors, asking them questions, and then just trying to get as much information so I can apply it and then be able to apply that in my appointment. So I kind of think back to, okay, where did I start and where am I at now? Mm-hmm. And it's like, okay, well, now I'm going into almost eight years of, of this, you know, being an academic advisor. So I'm like, okay, I, I think I know a thing or two, but there's still a lot more that, that I need to learn and, and we'll be learning. And I like how you put, you know, at the end of those sentences, just say yet, because yeah. you haven't learned it yet, but you will, if you keep applying yourself and pushing yourself. Um, and I think connected to that goes into one of the other presentations that you did. And that was, who do you want to be when you grow up? Um, and I feel like part of that maybe even connects to like your journey in, into where you're at now. Can you talk more about that skill saw? Yeah. Or skill shop, I should say. No, no problem. Absolutely. So that one was, again, one that I was like, you know, what can I actually talk about and not have a script? (laughs) You know, what can I address and have students just kind of hear someone in this role and realize, Ooh, that wasn't like a straight line. Like that's everything wasn't perfect. Um, I think a lot of times our students might have the perception. um, Okay. This person has all the answers. This person knows everything. So they've known what they needed to do from day one. And that's, that's not the case. Well, maybe in some cases, um, but that wasn't my case. And so that particular skill shop, I focused a lot on who's telling you what to be, right? And and the emphasis in that was you should be the one choosing who you are going to be in the future. Um, And I know that that's not always the case. You know, I talk with students all the time. I mean, frankly, I have students in here with parents sometimes um, who are just saying, well, I my mom wants me to be, or mom is actually, you know, interjecting and saying, well, she would like to, and it's, 
you know, it's a little bit disheartening. I get it. I understand where that influence is coming from because it's kind of just this encouragement. I want the best for you. Um, but that skill shop was really meant to just help students think about themselves um, and not consider that to be selfish. Because uh, at the end of the day, once you get into that major and once you get into that career, you are the one that's clocking in and clocking out every day. Yeah. Right. You are the one who is experiencing that. And I just wanted to help students realize that you can change your mind. You don't necessarily have to follow what someone else is asking you to do. Um, and you just have to make sure you have a plan. So if you're saying, no, mom and dad, I don't want to be a doctor. What do you want to do instead? Right. And how are you going to help them to realize I want to do this instead because these are my strengths? Right. Or I know what my weaknesses are. And that's something I have to be able to do in that career. And I can't do that or I'm not ready to do that. So that skill shop was more so think about yourself um, and realize that it's OK to have your own pathway. Um, and of course, I shared my own experience a little bit in there. Um, I try for those to be more interactive. So not so much just Isabel talking, but mostly students, you know, talking about their experience. And it was crazy because they're all kind of on the Padlet. I love Padlet, by the way. Um, or they're in the chat box and they're like, yeah, my mom wants me to do this. My dad wants me to do that, but I don't think I can do that. Um, or I have no idea what career I want to follow. I don't know who I want to be when I grow up. I'm not ready to grow up. So it was just really, really nice to kind of see that sense of community. Um, and I think that helped a lot of them too, to realize it's okay if you don't know. Um, and, and students don't always feel like that's an appropriate response. Um, and I think as advisors, we have to tell them it's okay to feel that way, right? There are resources that you can use and, and ways that you can get to that answer if you don't have it yet. Um, but you just have to tell us that. And I think sometimes students are afraid to tell us that. Um, so again, I, I really like that skill shop because students just got to really just free flow and chat and share their thoughts, share their ideas. Um, and I was happy to kind of share my, my journey here too. Yeah. And I like that with, with your skill shop, you know, you had that, that time for students to really kind of just be open and share, but then that you weren't telling them this is what you need to do, you know, um, because as you know, and working with a lot of students, a lot of it might be cultural based, like with, with their family and, you know, they, their parents or guardians having an influence in terms of major or career options. So you gave the students some options in terms of like, here are some questions maybe to discuss uh, mm -hmm. with, with your parents on that uh, versus like, no, do what you want. And this is how you're going to do it. <laughs> um, so, yeah. And, and so you kind of had a lot of, a lot of great aspects of, of both of those uh, skill shops. So I hope you continue doing those and you have a lot more that you're going to do because it does seem like it, it does have a positive impact um, on your students. Yeah, thank you. And, yeah. And so as we move on with, with, with the interview, um, I know uh, for you, you're all about wanting to stay engaged. Um, and it's something that you're very proactive about. So how have you been able to stay engaged at Valencia and maybe higher ed in general? Yeah. Oh boy. So staying engaged is probably something that people around me are just tired of hearing because I talk about it all the time. Um, it's so important. You know, we, perhaps if we have gotten really, really good at not making our conversations with students transactional, our daily work might feel very routine, right? Okay. I know what class comes after comp one. I know what you need if you want to be an engineer. I know what you need if you want to be a theater major. So we know all of these things. And I think what makes it different and what makes it um, 
interesting is when we do get engaged and we're doing something that's outside of that routine. So some of the ways that I really keep myself focused and excited about the work that I do um, is just getting closer to to Valencia, getting closer to the organization itself. Um, We have a lot of excellent opportunities to participate in committees, um, which no one is forcing me to do that. I think that's the best part, right? No one's saying, hey, Isabel, you need to sign up for this. Mm-hmm. completely up to me. Um, and those committees give me a chance, you know, in some cases to read scholarship essays from our students um, and think about, wow, I would have never heard that story in an advising session um, because maybe it's a student I would have never met. But now I'm, I know that there's a stu- at least one student experiencing this at Valencia and opportunities like that, I would say never pass them up. Um, there's another committee where, uh, you know, we're able to kind of think about staff members who would like to take leave, um, developmental leave, right? And kind of go on these experiences and have these opportunities to learn um, and professionalize. I That was from one of the episodes with Craig McGill, <laughs> yes. So pref- professionalization, right? Um, and that opportunity to just do things maybe outside of your advising work, um, but to grow as an advisor or to grow as any staff member. Um, and so that committee allows us to kind of read through these different proposals and again, decide, you know, does does this make sense? Does this add value to Valencia? Um, a hiring committee, right? That's another opportunity where no one is necessarily saying, hey, you need to do this, but it's a good chance for you to kind of see who are these individuals that we're bringing into the college? Um, you know, what kind of culture do we already have? And in listening to these interviews, is this someone who's going to add to that? Or is this someone who's going to change it up a little bit? Maybe we do need that kind of flavor. So those are the opportunities that I think when you take advantage of them, um, you get closer to the organization, you get a little bit further away from the actual work that you do too. And I think we need to do that sometimes. Um, We need to get our heads outside of the catalog um, and outside of the daily routine, just to kind of think about how does this fit in the grand scheme of things. Um, Back in November, we were having some graduation ceremony type things. Um, So we routinely only have one graduation ceremony for our fall, spring, and summer. Um, And then, of course, pandemic, uh, we haven't had a true in-person graduation in a while, um, but we've had kind of some other opportunities, right, where students could drive up uh, with their family and they had a stage set up outside they could walk the stage, have their name called, dressed up in their regalia, um, take fun pictures at the end of it. So I was there, you know, in the morning, waving students in and their families, signing them in. Um, and that just that helped me to remember, OK, Isabel, the 500 conversations you had this week about course selection lead to graduation. Mm-hmm. I may have never advised any of those students, but the idea was that we as a whole, as advisors, when we say, hey, you should take these three classes during the summer, it ultimately gets you to the 60 credits. Um, so I think just being engaged helps you to understand your work, comes full circle, um, and it, it just helps you to appreciate that. So very, very important to me. Um, one more piece of my engagement, which is part of Valencia, but I guess a little bit separate too. I am a mentor. Um, So I'm a mentor for the Horizon Scholars um, program. And so that 
takes pretty much our staff and our faculty, and we have opportunities to mentor high school students, um, not necessarily in dual enrollment, but just high school students in the community who um, are part of this wonderful program to get a scholarship at the end of the day. And it also encourages them just to volunteer, right, and, and stay involved as well. Um, so that has also been a piece of, of the engagement for me that just helps so, so much. Um, so I'm getting to see things at the end of the cycle. I'm getting to see things before the cycle, right? Who knows? Mm-hmm. My mentee could be a Valencia student in the future. You never know. Um, yeah. So it's just, it's important work, I think, that um, goes outside of what we do every day. And I think ultimately that's what keeps us um, happy because mm-hmm. courses, yeah, I guess they could keep you happy, but it's the work outside of that um, that really makes us remember this is important and this is um, special work for sure. Yeah. So like you're saying, your mentee might end up going to Valencia and who knows, you might end up being their advisor too. So (laughs) everything connects, goes goes full circle as well. But I like how you're saying that, yeah, we need to sometimes take a step back from like our daily routine because we can just get caught up in it and Mm -hmm. we kind of have our blinders on or, you know, we don't have the peripheral and it's good to maybe step out beyond a committee of, of something, you know, some other initiative, or yeah. even if it's not within your institution, maybe it's within like some other type of organization, but you're getting that extra fulfillment because exactly. ultimately like what got you here won't necessarily keep you here in a sense. And you always have to keep learning and kind of re-engaging in a way in, in different ways. And so those opportunities are there. Sometimes you just got to look for it. And sometimes it's just, they just fall into your lap. Uh, so, you know, sometimes it's just there and it's like, awesome. I don't need to go search. It's right there. Um, now, being an advisor, you know, almost three years now uh, as an advisor. So were you like fairly new, like a year in advising when when COVID hit? Yes. So I share this all the time with folks. I have worked more from home than I have on campus. So May 2019, I started and... As the story goes, spring break 2020, which was March 2020, um, we went on spring break and that following Monday, we were supposed to come back on campus and they said, um, no, give us a week. Uh, we're just kind of assessing things, um, but we'll, we'll see you sometime in April. Probably we weren't back on campus until August 2021. So I, I joke about it all the time. I'm like, I'm, I'm really a virtual advisor. Like, I'm not really, I'm not a real advisor. I'm a virtual advisor. <laughs> um, but yeah, right around that time. So it's been interesting for sure. Learning kind of both sides of it for sure. Yeah. I kind of just get thrown into it and yeah. figure it out as you go. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and as we wind down with, with this interview, among everything else that you're doing, aside from, you know, advising and the other opportunities that you're doing and the committees that you're part of and being a mentor, um, I also understand you also have your own podcast. Talk to us about that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so yes, I was never a real like podcast fan, um, mm-hmm. but for whatever reason, recently I just started thinking it's important if you have a voice to share it, if you have an opinion to get it out there. 
And sometimes, you know, we do that through writing. Um, I love writing. Again, I love English, but there was just something captivating about listening to someone. And I started listening to podcasts myself, including Adventures in Advising. I said, oh, that looks fun. Um, so yes, I do have my own podcast. It's fairly new. It's a baby podcast. It's very, very new. Um, but it is called Infused with Izzy. And Izzy is spelled I-S-Z-I. Um, and it's just been an opportunity for me to think about some of the things that I've done for my own personal development. Um, some things that I've done, like getting engaged and why that's important. Um, but yeah, if anyone wants to check it out, feel free infused with Izzy. So a little bit of my thoughts um, on things that people have already been talking about, but just given my perspective. Nice. And where can listeners find it, your podcast? Yeah, absolutely. So it is on Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Apple Podcasts. Awesome. Sounds good. And if anyone has any questions uh, based off anything that you've answered, or they want to connect, what's what's the best way for them to reach you? You know, I would give you my Valencia email, but we have all those little blocks and don't open this, don't open that. And I would hate <laughs> to miss a message from yeah. someone. Um, so you are always welcome to reach me on my personal email, which is Isabel, I-S-A-B-E-L-L-E dot St. Joy, S-A-I-N-T-J-O-Y at Outlook.com. Stay with us. We'll be right back. You love listening to podcasts, but have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? Maybe you want to build a brand, grow your business, or are looking for an excuse to talk about your favorite hobby. Whatever your reason for making a podcast, Buzzsprout is the place to start. Since 2009, Buzzsprout has helped over 300,000 people launch their own podcasts. Buzzsprout walks you step-by-step -step through the whole process and will give you powerful tools to start, grow, and monetize your podcast. Ready to get started? Click the link in the show notes to get our free step-by-step -step guide to starting your podcast today. Awesome. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. This was a great interview. Loved it. And great. I'm looking forward to hearing more about as you continue on as an advisor and then hopefully getting to see you at a conference soon. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you again for the invitation. Um, again, I, I think it's just wonderful the work that you're doing. Uh, I believe Dr. Melinda Anderson had said that in her uh, closing message last year. Uh, so I share the same sentiment, right? Just the fact that you have had so many amazing folks um, on this podcast of various levels, various um, experience. And, and to be one of those voices, I am incredibly thankful. So thank you again for having me. And yes, we will definitely continue to connect no matter what. <laughs> Sounds good. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. Thank you, Isabel. I really enjoyed your story getting into higher education and how everything in a way transferred well into academic advising. And your tips on staying engaged can be a great reminder that there's always more to do and more to learn. Next up, we have past guests, Dr. Craig McGill from Kansas State University and Dane Zanowski from Temple University back, but not to be interviewed. Craig and Dane are the interviewers of our guest, and that's Dr. Tony Lazarovich from University of Nebraska-Lincoln. We're here with Dr. Tony Lazarovich. Uh, he is currently the Director of Academic Advising for the College of Arts and Sciences at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln in Lincoln, Nebraska. He was born and raised in Iowa and obtained his bachelor's degree with majors in psychology, criminal justice, and behavioral science from Mount Marty College in Yankton, South Dakota. 
He obtained his master's degree in educational psychology with a focus in counseling psychology in 2010 and his PhD in educational studies with an emphasis in educational leadership and higher education in 2015. Prior to his work in advising, he served as an assistant program coordinator with a learning community and held a graduate assistantship in career services. Additionally, he spent six years as a resident scholar for Sigma Pi Epsilon sorry, fraternity while also working at the university. Uh, during this time at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, he has helped establish their Academic Advising Association and Young Professionals Network. Uh, Tony has been an active member of NACADA since 2010 and presented at many annual and regional conferences. He served as the chair of the advising community for transfer students and currently is a cluster representative within the advising communities division. He'll also be co-chairing the region six conference in 2023. Tony has authored nine articles and a book chapter. His research interests relate to academic advising and training and development and transfer students. All right, Dane, take us away. Awesome. Tony, great. Thanks for that intro, Tony. So for the podcast, this typical first question is, how, what brought you into advising? What's your journey into higher ed? Talk to us about that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, great to be on here with both of you today. And, uh, you know, I, I've listened to a number of the introductions. And one of the things that I've been uh, kind of uh, enjoyed listening is these stories, because what I've found, and I think, Craig, we can, might talk about a little bit later, like, nobody's journey is identical. And it seems like often um, you come by, you know, a way of just experiencing advising and, and it, a seed's planted. And, you know, when you think about professionalizing the field and what does that mean as far as educational backgrounds and whatnot, that can certainly add to the conversation. So, you know, for me, um, I would say that this was not also a pathway that I had envisioned for myself. If you were to go back when I was 18, in fact, often I still am the advisor right now for our undeclared students in our college. And I tell them I changed my major five times in my first year and a half of college. And um, and I still don't know what I want to do necessarily when I grow up. Right. So when I when I think about um, my pathway, so kind of starting at Mount Marty, I think there was just, for me, it's a very small liberal arts school in South Dakota. And I loved my college experience, made a lot of great friendships, uh, got involved with quite a few different organizations and activities. And that just kind of helped me really um, appreciate what college could bring uh, to my own development. Um, but it wasn't something where I saw myself saying, I want to work in higher ed the rest of my life. And so when I went on for my master's degree in counseling psychology, um, you know, I think that what I would say there is I was kind of in a place where I was like, let's keep all the doors open. And I was I was listening to Kyle Ross's uh, interview here last time. Uh, you know, he talked about the idea of parallel planning. And so without knowing the language at that point, I would say I was absolutely parallel planning throughout the course of my graduate work. Um, there was a thought that maybe I would want to work with youth and do counseling or maybe work with uh, families and, and couples. Uh, there was also this idea that maybe higher ed would be something that could be something I would want to do, but I didn't really know. Um, so I actually, when I moved to Lincoln for my first semester, I did not receive any kind of a graduate assistantship. So I was having to work on the side. So I started off as a paraeducator at the, in an elementary school here in town. And what an eye-opening experience that was for me coming from a smaller community and then going to a, a larger city working with uh, K through five students that needed assistance. And I 
quickly, um, I appreciated that experience and what it gave me as far as just understanding youth and their development today. Um, but by the end of my first semester, I had actually been looking for assistantship opportunities while I was going to school. And I had an opportunity to interview for a uh, assistantship with a learning community. And uh, of course, the benefit there was financially driven a little bit because that helped co cover graduate school. But uh, I quickly um, embraced that assistantship and really had an opportunity as uh, this learning community was brand new to the university. It was actually one of the largest uh, funded by a private donor and uh, or foundation. So um, working with first generation low income students uh, was just a really great way to get my ability to use my what I was learning in the classroom in the counseling program, but also thinking about what my roles could be within higher ed. Um, so I finished my my master's program in 2010. And at that point, I would say that I knew higher ed was definitely where I wanted to go. And I had applied for the PhD program and subsequently uh, spent one more year as a full time staff in that learning community. Um, what was nice about the learning community is kind of about to be a jack of all trades. And so they actually incorporated some advising with undeclared students at that point for me, along with programming and kind of uh, at risk student um, management with probation students and so forth. But that was really my introduction to advising um, in a very basic level. And so as I kind of got more integrated into that, then an advising position opened up in the College of Arts and Sciences. And um, at that point, I was really thinking about like, my interest is trying to expand into the broader university community. And, and that's what led me to come into Arts and Sciences. And I've been here ever since. Um, I've moved from academic advisor to coordinator to assistant director, associate director, and now director. So uh, I've been very fortunate that I've had great mentors and, uh, and, and supervisors along the way that have helped kind of give me the opportunity to expand and grow my own roles and leadership. Um, and I've really enjoyed my time here at Nebraska in particular. So maybe I'll just stop there as kind of the high in the sky. Here's what I've been doing and how I got here. Yeah, that's awesome. And I definitely agree that, you know, Anyone you talk to who's currently in advising, they're coming from any number of backgrounds, right? Um, so I, I definitely connect in terms of I initially was looking to be a high school Spanish teacher, right? I yeah. looked into secondary ed, and it was actually during my sophomore year during like student teaching where I was like, eh, maybe I prefer working with college level students, right? Mm -hmm. So that's where like I connected with my academic advisor at the time and was like, let's go for this. How do I get into this field? So that's awesome. Um, and I know, um, you know, Craig can definitely share, like, I love how you brought up that professionalization piece mm -hmm. of advice, and we can definitely get into that as well. Um, Craig, yeah, it's one of the yeah. Yeah. challenges of our field, I think, is that we come from all different walks of life. Yeah. Uh, it's beautiful that we've got, you know, because we're interested in academics as academic advisors. Um, but I think it also creates some challenges, too, in kind of unifying the role and the uh, expectations, the academic, you know, credentials required uh, to be an academic advisor. So, mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting because, like, as I think about the staff that I supervise, one of our staff in particular uh, has his undergraduate degree in um, meteorology, climatology. And then he had started a master's program in that field and decided that he wanted to work more in higher education. But we've aligned his kind of overall undergraduate interests and even still now to the students he's advising. And I think the students really appreciate that. Um, how do you account for that potentially as far as a broader model to say, well, does the advisor need to have the um, 
academic background of the majors that they're advising or not, or what kind of information do they need to be aware of? I don't think you're going to often find, if you think about STEM in particular, there's probably not too many people that are pursuing a bachelor's degree in engineering that are thinking, oh, I want to go and become an academic advisor, right? But there is value into saying, did you have some science background? And well, and and to your point, my first uh, gig as an academic advisor was in forensic science and biochemistry, and I felt that me being a non-scientist was actually a benefit because I could bring a different side of the house, as it were, uh, and talking to these students about their non-major classes and impress upon them the importance of taking art history or uh, humanities or philosophy, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. I think uh, that raises an interesting kind of approach to making sure that we're communicating to the students what is advising, right? And and ultimately, what maybe are the learning outcomes or the objectives, the expectations? Some people use the advising syllabi. I mean, I think what you help students understand is what can they expect, at least at this point, where there is no standardized approach to advising across the globe, at least helping them understand what should they expect in this particular institution or that unit and so forth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that kind of actually segues into like a piece. So Tony, I know it, it one of the annual conferences, I'd seen one of your presentations, many presentations um, related to like professional de- development and training. Um, I think that ties into, you know, it, it doesn't matter where you come from. What matters is, for example, looking at the core competencies, right? the conceptual, the informational, but, you know, what it sounds like you're interested in is more so the relational piece, right? Mm-hmm. So what are, what are your thoughts and feedback in terms of like how we, anyone new to advising, what is a good onboarding process related to those core competencies, you know? Sure. Um, well, I've, you know, one of the things that we've been doing here in our college that I think has been really great is all of our, we've kind of potted our advising teams into kind of three sub areas based off of kind of where they feel their level of expertise was at. So we've got about six of our advisors that would classify themselves as newer advisors. So, you know, zero to two or three years, we've got some mid-level advisors that are kind of that, you know, three to seven years or so forth. And then we've got a group of advisors that have been around for a few years. And we actually have used um, the kind of Nakata series, the what we call, I would say the 101, 201, 301 books, right, to kind of work through a, a reading group. And I think those books uh, have really provided some great conversation for them. We've been meeting uh, kind of each month to kind of go through some of the chapters. And and I think that's a really interest, uh, a good way to start uh, just to kind of get a sense of, especially for somebody that maybe hasn't had any academic advising um, kind of curriculum in their in the master's or bachelor's programs. Maybe they haven't done uh, the certificate or anything like that. So I think that to me at least gives you a, a solid kind of entry ground as to, okay, everybody that's going to come to, say, an account of conference is at least kind of operating from some of the same definitions, some of the understanding. Um, you know, they've also got the core competencies guide, which is a really short 25 page read, right? So I think, you know, utilizing that within a training moment and building in some time to just reflect. Um, one of the other things that I really encourage all of our advisors to do in our first kind of month and a half, two months is just to kind of generate if they haven't already that advising philosophy statement. And then we go back each year uh, and review it to say, okay, is this what you're doing? Is this how advising actually is working for you? What would you tweak? Um, because things shift over time, right? Maybe our, we learn some new theories or new approaches and we want to incorporate that in. So 
Um, the other thing I would say is that depending on the institution that somebody's working at, they may have access to some other either professional development or um, even graduate uh, tuition reimbursement. And so um, maybe they came from a background that's totally outside of higher education. Why not take a class or two that may be in a higher ed program or a counseling based program um, that just focuses on skills um, and development? I think, you know, sometimes it's really hard and I don't think there's a blurred line sometimes between like, okay, at what point does advising become counseling? How do you ensure that you're not going into it too far? Right. But the skills that I gained through that counseling program have been just instrumental in the work that I do, not just with students, but also the staff. So um, if we could get um, kind of a common ground amongst some of those building, some of those skills as well, I think that's going to help um, with whatever the conversation comes up because you can navigate kind of the informational component in a variety of ways. The relational piece takes some work for you to really kind of hone in on that, that own skill development. Yeah. Tony related to that. Can you talk about you've, you've published some work on relational skills and the importance of them um, with a very esteemed colleague, I understand. Uh <laughs> Can you talk about some of that work? Sure. Um, yeah, you know, professionally, uh, you know, that esteemed colleague uh, happens to be on this call today. And, and I've been grateful for, for you, Craig, because I would say, as we've had a number of times, uh, you know, you as a faculty member have that built into your portfolio of work that you do. And it's not always as uh, easily accessible to people that maybe are doing kind of advising work or even in administrative work. So um, Craig has challenged me to kind of... Ex- continue to do some of the research that uh, maybe is not always happening in that traditional eight to five job. So, um, you know, the work that I think um, the relational skill work that, you know, we're talking about there comes from an article that we have been uh, published on and working on um, that looked at an institution's professional development program and kind of identified, well, what was available and what were advisors doing and um, and that also incorporated into that institution's kind of uh, annual review process as well. So one of the things that we kind of found a little bit was that ultimately advisors didn't have as much access to the relational skills training that uh, they did as far as the conceptual and informational components. And then the second portion of that kind of uh, research then actually went out and interviewed with the advisors to kind of understand their perspectives and their perceptions of the relational training and um, you know, that could probably be its own uh, hour, two, three, four long podcast. But I would say that some of the key things there was that advisors generally, uh, I think, have an appreciation for the relational skills um, that are needed to work in this field. Um, there's also maybe some general understanding that it's hard to train. And there's also a, a big spectrum of where people are at. There's also maybe the misperception that because somebody wants to be in a student services profession, that they already have those skills. And so there's maybe not as much of a need to do the training. Um, And and I think that that's probably the area that if we were to kind of focus a little bit more on um, is trying to help everybody understand and and measure where are you actually at in this competency and then identify where is it that you can grow? Um, Because I think, you know, the one thing I'll go back to my undergraduate institution is they had four core values, one of which was lifelong learning. I think most of us in higher ed, if we want to stay in higher ed and we value the intrinsic nature of education, we should always want to be learning. So we, um, if we use that motto or that idea that uh, I need to continue to grow and learn, then there's always going to be new ideas and approaches to how 
do we build relationships? How do we communicate effectively? Um, and of course, in the last couple of years, uh, things like podcasts, things like Zoom meetings, right? Like have forced us to also adapt the way we communicate with others, which is a relational skill. So um, it's never ending. We should never be um, kind of satisfied with what we've done for training. And we should be constantly evaluating um, all three of those, you know, competencies, but in particular, that relational component. Yeah, I love how you bring up the fact that, like, and it's definitely been in my experience too, like, you know, especially training managers within advising or, hey, what is the informational piece that I need to get this person up and running so they can be meeting the students? Like, that's typically the top priority, right? You know, because sometimes there's a sense of urgency because there's a need for an advisor. Um, but yeah, I love how you you bring up all the, the three core competencies, but as well as I love that aspect of incorporating them into like the annual review process, right? You know, you're not just going with just the institutional benchmarks. You're also incorporating those competencies uh, into into job review and job performance, which I think is great. Yeah, I think, you know, just thinking about the core competencies, too, and, and Craig and I have had many conversations about this, but, um, you know, with that Coming out in, I think it was 2018 is when they re released the competencies guide. I think we have an opportunity as not just an association, but advising as a community to really start to utilize that for some good research, um, both qualitative and quantitative and, and mixed methods. Because, um, you know, while we've got this document there, have we actually seen some good publications come out of it that have assessed um, you know, advising success, retention rates to advising core competencies. I think there's some some opportunities in the, in the near future for folks that are interested in doing research to kind of delve into that a little bit more deeply. Well, and to see what's missing, um, I'm going to make a statement that might be somewhat controversial. Um, but we were submitting a proposal yesterday and it was asking about which core competencies does this particular research and it was a research study and it's very much on academic advising that we had trouble linking core competencies to this this topic um, and I think it comes down to what I think is missing from the core competencies and that goes back to a fabulous academic advising uh, today article by Jeffrey McClellan from 2007 uh, where he he argues that in addition to conceptual, relational, informational, there's also technological competencies and um, most important in my mind, personal competencies. Similar to like being a counselor, like you have to know what your own, you have to know yourself, you have to know your own values, your worldview, and how that's going to impact your practice. And I think those are kind of what's missing most from the core competencies uh, that would have made uh, us assigning which core competencies this particular research was tackling a lot easier. And it just, it really illustrated that gap to me. Um, so as great as the core competencies are, I have to wonder if, if there's, you know, if they're imperfect. Sure. And I think, you know, kind of along those lines too, going back to that research that we did uh, kind of on the relational competency is that some of the activities and then, pieces of engagement that people were doing for professional development didn't neatly fit into one box or the other. I mean, mm -hmm. if you were to classify going to an Akata conference into one of those, you can't, right? Because there's so many different um, presentations and, and even in one session, you could be addressing multiple and or all. So how do you really, for purposes of research, uh, you, it would be hard to classify often what was that experience and, and 
And there's always got to be something that's outside. I don't want to say outside of the box. We don't want to think inside the box, but I think we often use that analogy. But not everything is just a perfect puzzle piece. So there's there's definitely got to be some gray areas there. I would agree with you there. Yeah, yeah, Craig, I love that, uh, especially that aspect of the um, the personal aspect of it, because you need to know who you are, your identity, and what you bring to the table. You know, when working with your students, for example, like you need to know what your biases are, you know, and yeah. stuff like that, so you can. Be a more um, equitable and inclusive advisor because you know where you're coming from, but you want to learn where those students are coming from. And I'm sure we could, all three of us could talk all day about the tech aspect of advising. I have like five systems up right now, you know, that I'm using on a daily basis. Like we all know about that, yet that's definitely like a key aspect to, you know, bringing on new advisors. I mean, I'll give you an example. Um, I was an advisor for three years. at University of Nebraska-Lincoln, and I had a great experience, but I was mostly working with students who looked like me and were from the same part of the country as me, who had similar upbringing as me, and it didn't force me to examine my privilege in the same way that working at FIU, the largest Hispanic-serving institution in the country, which is two-thirds first-generation, and like in that first year, I realized, holy cow, my, on, I think my mom's side, four generations of college going, you know? So like, I'm like a fourth generation college goer on that side, you know? And so I had been emphasizing the importance of, you know, doing the, the, the degree and the major you love. And that's, I still believe that, but what was missing was the nuance of, first generation students coming to college, you know, with a lot of voices from their families in their ear, you know, pressuring them to go into certain areas. And I just did not appreciate that before coming, um, what that privilege was doing to me. Um, So I hope that's a pretty clear example of how like your worldview and your experience really can color your advising practice. And certainly I hope I became a much more attuned, um, better advisor in the years that followed that. Yeah, absolutely. And I would say, too, just think about privilege. Um, You know, that was one of the things that um, I don't, you know, Cray, we could go back to the article that we did on the autoethnography project and kind of reflecting as white men about privilege. And, um, you know, I think that for me, it wasn't until I actually got into a master's degree program that I really started to think about privilege. And so, um, looking at how do we help students and the undergraduate level start to examine privilege and social justice. I think that we've seen that that's become a much more important part of our dialogue than it was when certainly I was as an undergraduate student. Um, I mean, go back to the technology piece for a second too, because one of the things that, um, I would encourage, and I think is important is that advisors, um, aren't shying away from learning the new technologies. Um, or I've been, you know, privileged on our campus to be involved with a number of the groups that have been bringing on the new technology. We've got some working groups that uh, if you have an opportunity, even if you're not, say, an expert in the field, you don't know how to code or anything like that, right? Like most of us don't, um, to be on the front line of that conversation, to be able to kind of play in the sandbox per se, and just be able to see both um, 
what the advisor or staff member is going to experience, but also what the student experiences, I think, is so valuable. Um, and as advisors, when you're working with administrators who are making the decisions on the technological products you're purchasing, to be able to give that feedback as a front end user is so critical. So um, I know we're in the midst of doing some additional uh, shifting of our products that we're using right now. And um, so to see kind of how that's processed from the very beginning to where we're at now, which is getting ready to kind of implement that has been really helpful. Uh, and I'd encourage everybody to take advantage of that and ask if you can, um, if that ever becomes part of the conversations at another institution. Yeah, definitely. You know, like the, the tech piece, my perspective has always been if used right, technology can help and it can also lead to more developmental advising opportunities if it's utilized right. But I agree too, like the, um, it kind of, it can be, it can hurt students and not be inclusive, especially when you're looking at policy and procedure, right? Mm -hmm. You know, you need to implement it right, but you also need to look at it from the student's perspective and is it user-friendly on their end, right? You know, you can get all these IT people involved, but they may not be aware of what is what is the jargon that students use, or what do students comprehend? Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think yeah, technology if used right can definitely help with that inclusion piece and aid in making any process easier. Yeah, and how do you incorporate technology into uh, a training moment for students and not have that necessarily be the forefront of an advising interaction? I think is really critical too. So when can we introduce students to the different technologies? that they're going to be using. I think that was one of the things we heard over the course of our orientation program this last summer as we were trying to train students how to utilize a couple of systems alongside also having that first interaction with them and advising. And we're going to shift some things accordingly so that we can still focus predominantly on the relational development. We can get the course enrollment. And then later on, we can kind of cycle back and say, okay, let's make sure you understand fully how to utilize these tools that you're going to be expected to use while you're here. So let's kind of shift gears a little bit here. Let's obviously Nakata is a big thing in our world, right? In the advising community. Um, so I know you've been involved with like the transfer student advising community. You got the uh, Region 6 conference coming up in 2023. So talk to us about your Nakata experience, how it's been helpful, any advice for advisors out there? What can you get connected? Yeah, well, I can vividly recall my my first Nakata conference. Uh, I was encouraged when I was in the learning community uh my office was actually embedded in our exploratory and advising center. So um, I was living amongst our other advisors that were working with undeclared students. And they, uh, we were hosting the region six conference in Lincoln. So um, I was encouraged to just submit a graduate student uh, scholarship application. And at that point I didn't know much of, at all about what Nakata had, um, but I ended up getting it. And uh, so I attended the Nakata regional conference and uh you know, getting the that scholarship allowed me to kind of go to a lunch with some of the leaders in Region Six, and of course, we all know Charlie Nutt, and and, I, and he was there, and you know, just seeing that community right there uh, really kind of energized me because you you talk to anybody that's part of Nakata, and you'll hear that kind of idea, the Nakata family, right? And so, uh, and that's absolutely been my my experience too. So ever since then, I've. I uh, just tried to find ways to get involved and, and you know, connect with others across the country and really across the globe now. But um, so that's where it kind of started at. And then I like I just kind of ate the Kool-Aid, if you will. So, um, you know, I then went up, I think, the second conference, uh, which is where Craig and I actually really got to start to know each other was our regional conference up in Winnipeg. 
Um, and that's still by far one of my most favorite conferences that I've attended. I think it was the idea of being in an international place, uh, albeit we drove up there. It was a good time. And um, I had to laugh. That was the first time I gave a professional presentation as at that regional conference. Um, I had to say I was uh, disappointed by the number of people that actually came to our session. But I'll just do the, the quick plug by the fact that we were competing with a session that had Charlie Nutt in it. And so I just kind of uh, I learned real quickly, like, how do you have to uh, kind of adjust your mindset when also presenting? So um, and ever since then, I've gone to, you know, different conferences, whether that's regional, annual conferences. And then um, I got connected to the transfer advising community because it connected to two things. First off, a grad assistantship that I had had in career services. One of my projects that I did while I was there was trying to understand what did transfer students uh, experience and understand of a career services office? What does that mean to them? What do they expect that that service should provide? And um, that was just a good opportunity for me to learn about kind of what was the transfer student's perspective and what have we shared with them as far as the orientation process um, in comparison to a first-year student coming straight out of high school that goes through a, an intensive orientation. Um, and so it, that led then to my dissertation and my PhD program, which focused on transfer students and their journey as their transition experience. Um, and then I learned when I was involved with Nakata that there was an advising community on transfer students. At the time, I think it was the commission um, and interest groups uh, session. But um, So I joined that steering committee. And um, after a few years of kind of following kind of Chris Kirchhoff and Amber Cargill, uh, they really pushed me and uh, to say, that, you know, you should run as chair. And, uh, you know, one of the things over the last 10 years that has been kind of a prominent part of Nakata's conversation has been sustainable leadership. And, and that was something that I really valued from the mentors that I had um, within the advising communities division. And so um, I've also taken that as far as my own experience. Uh, I had a great time in my two years as the advising community chair, um, got to do a lot of fun things as far as events that were on Zoom. And um, and we started a newsletter and, and just so much kind of connecting to other peers that have similar interests in how do we make transfer student success. Um, and seeing the data in particular, you look at kind of one of the things that we've constantly struggled with is how do you get um, – how do we get our peers specifically at community colleges to be able to have access to some of these resources? Cause um, we struggled with, you know, do we, how do we get more community college peers on our steering committee? How do we get more work um, or events for them? Cause um, you know, we oftentimes hear that transfer students themselves are um, kind of, I don't want to say second class, but we forget about them when we're thinking about how do we put in, success workshops? How do we actually orient them to their new institution when they come? It's, um, some institutions, I would say, have done it absolutely well, but um, that became kind of my whole mission is how do we help whatever people are coming to these groups? What can we do that's going to give them a nugget that they can take back and, and try to incorporate in their own way at their own institutions? Um, so now I'm on the, I'm a cluster representative. So that basically means that uh, I'm working with kind of five of the advising communities, uh, their chairs, just to kind of help them with any questions they may have or how do they continue to effectively move their their goals that they have set for the year. Um, and then I'll be helping co, uh, co-lead the Nakata Region 6 conference next year, uh, which is going to be held in Nebraska. We've yet to identify the specific location we're going to have. But uh, so myself and uh, one of our advisors in our college are going to be co-leading that. So um, 
that's kind of where I've been involved with at Nakata. Um, you know, I think, as I mentioned, Nakata family, I think for anybody who's, again, newer or just simply at a point where they feel they can devote more time, um, this is a great opportunity right now as far as our time is concerned to to get involved. I think we've seen so much burnout that's happened in the last few years, I think, and not Nakata specifically, but broadly within um, the fields um, that I would say that this is an opportunity to kind of get your foot in the door and, and start small, um, you know, starving on a steering committee or, or just participating, finding a mentor. There's a number of regions that have mentoring programs. We've got, you know, some of the broader Nakata mentoring programs, but um, you know, it'd be great if we could get more people, the more hands that are doing the work, the less the load that is for anyone. Right. And that's what I'd love to, I think the sustainable leadership helps. Um, so if you get in early and you start on a lower role, you'll have a mentor that can help you figure out what's that next step for you, whether that's, um, you know, staying within one of the divisions or whether that's kind of branching out and trying everything. Yeah, I agree. And that, that's a great plug for, again, for anyone newer to advising or anyone looking to get involved in Nakata, like there between the advising communities and the region, the stuff that goes on within the regions, there's something out there for everyone. I feel like, you know, I'm, I'm definitely involved with the uh, training and development advising community, um, recently connected with the well-being and advisor retention committee, which I think is great. You mentioned that burnout piece with, you know, over the pandemic. I think that's been a great support system personally and professionally as well. Um, but yeah, even within the regions, you know, the regional conferences coming up here uh, in February and March, um, great ways to get connected. And there's ways you can be highly connected and there's ways that you can just be like, Hey, I have a couple hours to give. What can I do? Right. Um, and going back to like Craig, you know, he was talking about before, like being connected with you through the regional conference. Right. Absolutely. I, you know, and I, I want to stress that I also understand that we're in a moment where finances are a big concern amongst a lot of institutions. And you're saying, well, it's the only way that I can get involved with this group or this organization by going somewhere. And that's absolutely not the case. Right. And I think that's important for us all as we think about our own professional development is um, being realistic, establishing some goals. And, and some of those goals might be individual kind of, um, you know, on our own reading books, whether that's watching podcasts, whether that's any of those kind of things that you can do on your own that maybe are low or no cost um, to maybe it's your goal that, you know, I can't go to an annual conference every year, but once every three years, I'm going to try to make it a point that I get to somewhere Um everybody's in different situations. So I think that professional development planning and outlining an actual um, kind of what that plan looks like for you as an individual, it doesn't have to be the same for everybody else uh, or for everyone, but um, you know, taking advantage of what is accessible is really an important key piece there. Tony, can you talk to us about the uh, association at uh, university of Nebraska Lincoln that you've uh, played a part in establishing? Yeah, um, that was um, still one of my probably most favorite projects that I've had an opportunity to work on. Uh, so when I moved over to the College of Arts and Sciences uh, back in 2011, I think it was, then um, one of the things that our director had in, um, kind of tasked me with is creating a task force that could look at our what we at the time called the Advising Forum. It was basically just a loose um it was most, mostly just a listserv that people could share information out. But there was a desire at that point to say, how can we provide more opportunities for advisors to build community, to be connected to each other, not just information sharing, but also um, the professional development opportunities and whatnot. So um, 
through the course of a year, I worked with, I think, seven different colleagues from not just advising, but also thought about kind of um, tangentially related fields like our learning communities and um, our Office of Academic Success and Intercultural Services. So there were seven of us that kind of um, started the process of creating, you know, looking at bylaws, working with advisors, holding some different town halls to kind of say, what should this organization look like? What would be the structure? Um, we voted on uh, the implementation or approval of that group. Um, I think it was the end of that first year. And I have at the time, um, I think I ran unopposed, uh, as I feel like many people end up um, in some of the positions during, um, you know, just thinking about where we're at, like I mentioned with burnout, right? So I ran unopposed. But the one thing that I would say with that group that I had ran as a platform was I wanted to create an advising conference for us locally, because again, knowing that not everybody has access to either the funds or the opportunities to travel, um, or they have not a desire to travel because of other obligations. Um, so I wanted to bring an on-campus kind of one-day event. Um, so in our first year, which I think was 2013, we um, we had an advising conference uh, and worked with a committee that held that uh, in February. Um, I think we had 87 or 90 people. And uh, I was excited because we were able to bring for our first conference, uh, Aaron Justina, um, up to be our keynote speaker. So um, you know, and then the following year, we expanded it out to include our University of Nebraska peers. And we had about 120, 130 folks. And we brought in uh, Kathleen Shea Smith. So we've had some really power hitters that have come to campus to kind of be keynotes there. And that conference has actually expanded since we started that. It's been going on now. It's going to the eighth year, I think it is. And um, we've had up to 14 different institutions have people pr um, come uh, for all the way from K-State, all the way up to, um, we had a colleague from Minnesota, I think, one year. So uh, it's been a lot of fun to see that particular conference grow. It's been, um, you know, really well received, and, and we've had really good buy-in from our overall all-campus community. Um, and it's not just the conference, but that was kind of what I wanted to make sure, like I would say, that was my legacy, if you will, for the organization. That was what I kind of wanted to ensure we had. Um, there's a lot of other things that are happening in that kind of organization still. We have kind of a couple meetings per semester just to kind of do some information sharing, bring in some of our peers like scholarships and financial aid or um, maybe our counseling center to do some workshops. We've got a diversity and equity group that does some different kind of events that are there. We've got community and, and engagement there. Um, so we've just tried to incorporate a way to build in, you know, a mini um small version of, of Nakata, if you will, on a campus level. Um, and people have really enjoyed it. I think if you were to um, look at what is our advising community as far as the cohesiveness now compared to where we were at probably 10 years ago, um, I think you would probably see a lot people, a lot of people feel like we probably have grown as a community and, and it's a lot more of across campus collaborative relationships than maybe we would have seen um, 10 years ago. Yeah, I know here at Temple University, we have something similar to the academic advising group um, and a piece that we're, we're building in even more so recently is the like a mentorship piece, um, which I'm, I'm happy to, you know, I'm a mentor this year for someone who just started back in November. Um, so I'm really looking forward to that role, you know, and bringing my experience, not only here at Temple, just, you know, being able to share like, hey, did you think about Nakata or getting involved or, you know, let's let's talk about what you're interested in. Um, so, yeah, I think, it, you know, campus wide or university wide advising groups like that um, are definitely beneficial and really help you connect with others outside of your department 
and get feedback on, hey, how are you guys doing this, right? How are you handling this process or, you know, learning new things uh, just to share best practices, I think. Is right. Yeah. yeah, I think we actually incorporated a ment- I would We didn't call it a mentoring program. I think it was more of a peer connections group. And part of that was because we wanted there to be an opportunity for mentoring, but not everybody necessarily saw themselves as needing a mentor. Um, So we kind of were looking, well, what did you want out of this partnership? Are you looking for a mentor-mentee relationship? Are you looking to connect with a colleague that um, is in that same position or level just at another part of campus just to kind of, again, build those networks uh, around and there's a little bit of organization that goes into trying to kind of make sure that you fit those folks needs. But um, I think that was a really insightful way to kind of think about how do we pair people together, provide them what they want and need um, and be intentional about that too. So let's take a, let's take a turn to a little personal side. Um, So I know I have a six year old daughter at home. You know, I love being a father. Uh, Craig recently shared, I think you have a a one-year-old at home, if that's correct. He just turned one yesterday. So that was, yeah, it's been fun. Yeah. I was going to say, what's life like being a father? Like, has that impacted your, your role as an advisor? Like what's going on there? Yeah. Yeah. No, uh, his name is TJ and TJ has been amazing. He's been a lot of fun. You know, one of the things that was really unique about uh, the timing of all this was obviously COVID had impacted our working from home. Uh, and so as I was getting ready for TJ, uh, being born last January, we were trying to figure out, well, what would that look like for me? Am I going to have any time to work from remotely? Um, because we were getting ready to shift my role back to on campus. And, um, so I was actually able for the first few months that TJ was, uh, after he was born, I was working three days a week from home and two days a week in the office. And, um, I didn't realize, I think until afterwards, how valuable that was for me. Um, you know, my work day, I would say shifted because it was no longer just eight to five. Um, you know, I would, there's a lot more breaks. I think as many of us probably experience where now I'm you know, doing more work in the evenings too, but I was able to take an extra long walk at lunch, right. Or, or things like that. So, um, I think a couple things that I kind of have taken away from just becoming a father and, and having TJ would be first off, um, and I actually incorporated them into a presentation I did on our campus, like all the pictures, that, uh, the different faces and emotions that he had. But um, I became, well, I thought I had empathy. Um, and I think I did before then. I gained, I think, quite a bit more after having my own son who was fully dependent on me and being able to recognize like things happen in life. Um, and whether that's, uh, you know, I've got to take a couple hours just so I can take care of something or um, I need grace because I didn't get much sleep last night. Um, I think that was the biggest uh, thing that really has changed for me is just a better understanding and appreciation for the the work life and family balance because um, before I could, I could stay as long as I, I needed to be here. And now having that second kind of responsibility has been a really great um, opportunity. Um, so yeah, he's been, He's been kind of a firecracker. Um, I think uh, I've been grateful to my partner who's been able to um, take, you know, some of the some of that off of my shoulders as far as, you know, what's been also great, too, is he comes to work twice a week uh, or three times a week for for lunch. So my wife is currently pursuing her degree and we've been uh, fortunate to be able to adjust schedules. So I get to actually bring him to work. I think. he kind of serves as a therapy kid a little bit for us. Um, you know, I, I asked kind of for permission to kind of adjust my lunch schedule and 
Um, my boss was grateful enough to allow me to do that. But uh, I told our staff, I said, you know, I'll keep him in my office. I'll keep the door shut. We'll try to avoid any distractions. Um, I didn't realize how much people actually wanted the distraction, though. So, uh, you know, they, he's always smiley. He's been so great. Uh, I think we've had maybe one fussy incident in the office for the hour that he was there. But um, that's been kind of a joy to be able to balance that role as well. And Craig, I don't want to leave you out. I know you have a new member in your family as well, if you want to share that. <laughs> I do. So uh, I've lived alone now for, I think, over 12 years. And for the last handful of years, at least, I've been really thinking about getting a companion. And I just haven't been able to make the move for whatever reason until um, basically I had friends from South Dakota uh, stay with me in town a couple of weeks ago and said, basically, we're tired of you talking about this maybe in the future. Let's go to the um, shelter now. So I did and I was pretty nervous and uh, it's been a big adjustment. But yeah, I've got a four year old chocolate lab. Uh, her name is Bella. And uh, I can't show you because she's downstairs. One of the great things recently is uh, she's become so independent that she doesn't have to be wherever I am, uh, which is both like uh, sort of a, a you know, um, not to, to compare being with a, a father of a human child, but like you want to see your kids go and, you know, fly. But there's also part of me that's like, oh, she doesn't need to be with me anymore. <laughs> So, um, yeah, that's been an adjustment, you know, cause I've lived with myself for 12 years and, you know, I am responsible for this life now. Um, so, but it's, it's been really wonderful. Uh, she's challenged me, uh, this morning. She really challenged my patients. Uh, <laughs> she, I, we have a, 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 um, a faculty assembly meeting once a month and it's, earlier than I prefer to get up, but you know, I do it obviously professional obligation. Uh, but I didn't have time to take her for a full walk before that. It was like, you know, getting her out to do her business and she just adamantly refused. She, I couldn't, I couldn't get her out to save my life. And so I just was kind of praying that she would last, you know, the hour and a half meeting before I could take her out to go. And she did, but uh, definitely an adjustment. Uh, but yeah, she's been great. I think whether it's an animal or a human, I think both of us having experienced this, I, I feel like, and I don't know what you, um, you would say, Craig, but like for me, it's definitely also opened my, I mentioned empathy, but just, I've been able to put myself in the understanding what students uh, challenges have been, whether they were saying, well, I've had this family obligation that was just really stressful for me. Um, or uh, I need to adjust my meeting. And I think just that flexibility has um, has been kind of ever heightened in my awareness in the last year, too. Yeah, great. Yeah. All right. So, Tony, as we're wrapping things up here with this, this great session here, um, can you tell our listeners what's a great way to connect with you? You know, if they have questions, if they want to follow up about anything, how can they get in contact with you? Yeah, I love connecting with folks. Uh, so you can certainly find me on any of uh, the social media platforms. It's Tony Lazarovich, and I'll also get my email. But uh, my email is T-L-A-Z-A-R-O-W-I-C-Z-2 
at unl.edu. And Dan, I see you laughing because you probably have the same experience with your last name too, right? Like, Oh my gosh. Getting my six-year-old to be able to spell our last name, it's, it's yeah, it's a challenge. Yeah. When I worked in the elementary school, they just called me Mr. L. I'm like, that's perfect. So, but yeah, Tony Lazarovich, there's uh, not too many of us out there. So I think my, my dad's probably the only other Tony Lazarovich that's out on social media, but uh, yeah, Facebook, Twitter, uh, Instagram. I love connecting, love c- um, talking with people about advising or non-advising related things too. So yeah. Tony ruined my pop quiz for Dane. I was going to ask him to pronounce your name and you've given him, you know. And Craig, actually, I want to give you the opportunity. Do you have any any plugs you want to do maybe for a recent publication, like through Nakata or something like that? <laughs> well, our guest of honor and I um, do have a chapter on relational skills coming out in the academic advising training and development um, co-edited by uh, Rebecca Hapes and Karen Archambeau. Um, and Tony and I are always working on other stuff. We've got, um, an article going to be coming out in the Nakata journalist summer. And, um, in terms of my own stuff, uh, really exciting this, uh, October, the second edition of the, um, scholarly inquiry and academic advising will be coming out in time for, uh, the Portland conference. And it's just, it's tremendous. It's, um, it's, it was just such a, a blessing. The book, you know, uh, e- I mean, it was a lot of work. I don't mean to suggest it wasn't, but just like it just everything went so smoothly with the co-editors and with the authors. It's just really terrific. Um, and I think I can now say that uh, my third and last for a while book um, is going to be examining the international evolution professionalization of academic advising so we're we're doing a truly international scope uh we've got i think about 20 different chapters on advising in in different countries across the world um it's going to be co-edited with um doctors david gray and uh, mevish ali and we're just uh thrilled about it it's it's very exciting and you just, and I know you talked about it, uh, I think on a previous podcast, but you just also had your edited book released here last uh, October as well, The Advising yeah. Ele- Lesbian, Gay, Bisexual, Transgender, and Queer College Students, which I'm looking forward to uh, purchasing a number of copies that we're going to use for our next book club for our advisors. And that's another quick plug I'll just say is for those that have the ability to spend f- funds for professional development, the books that they provide for are a great way to bring people together and to do some professional development. Um, number of great books. And as somebody who makes zero dollars from royalties, I can say this, uh, please purchase them, <laughs> write um, book reviews of them, uh, put, you know, uh, and, and not just my books, but all books. We, one of our challenges is uh, a lot of the research is only within our own area, within, you know, Nakata Journal and Nakata Publications, which are necessary, but we need to get the word about advising outside of Nakata, too. Well, Tony, it's been a pleasure. Craig, as always. Yes. Yeah. Thanks. thanks for being here. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for having me. It's been fun. Look forward to more conversations as well. Thanks, Tony, for joining us today. I definitely enjoyed hearing about your many Nakata stories, as well as the importance for us to be involved in the 
many conversations going on about advising. And thanks to Dane and Craig for interviewing Tony. Let's have you back again soon, okay? And let's get into our final interview, this one with Casey Gregerson from University of Minnesota, Twin Cities. Casey Gregerson is a senior academic advisor at the University of Minnesota, Twin Cities. Casey is very invested in the advising profession and especially in retaining advisors. She serves as the inaugural chair of the Nakata Advising Community for Wellbeing and Advisor Retention and is also involved in Region 6. Casey received the University of Minnesota's John Tate Award for Excellence in Undergraduate Advising in March 2021, which was and is a tremendous honor. Casey lives in Maple Grove, Minnesota with her husband, daughter, and curmudgeonly dog and loves finding new running routes in the Twin Cities metro area as she trains for the Twin Cities Marathon. Casey, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Matt. It's good to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you on. And I know we're going to have a lot to talk about. I know later on we'll be talking about a certain type of podcast called Nakata Presents that you've been a part of and you have a series going on with that. But maybe we'll start with, you know, telling us a little bit about yourself and your path into higher ed and academic advising. All right. So I um, am a first generation college student. I went to the University of Wisconsin, Eau Claire, uh, which was about three hours from my home. So I'm originally from a small town in Minnesota, Winthrop. And um, it's small to the point where I graduated with like 90 some students and uh, did not want to go to a school that any of those <laughs> those classmates were going to be attending. Um, just needed, needed a fresh start. And uh, found Eau Claire and really got involved in housing and residential life right away. Um, and became an RA or resident assistant and uh, was involved in like student activities and programs and had some wonderful mentors there who told me about this, you know, unique path in life of going into student affairs. Um, so I then went to Minnesota State Mankato, and I was a graduate assistant in student conduct. Um, and I enjoyed it and and thought like, okay, this is this is definitely what I want to do. This is I can really make a difference here. <laughs> and then um, did an internship in advising. And I I enjoyed that as well, but I don't think I really had the full breadth of what you can do with advising in just a 10-hour-a-week internship. Um, So my first job out of graduate school was at the University of Alabama down in Tuscaloosa, and it was in um, student conduct, or they called it judicial affairs at the time. And I, I enjoyed it, but a lot of it was like meeting with students who would try to sneak alcohol into Brian Penny Stadium. So um, it was not quite as rewarding, I think, as I originally thought it could be. Um, but I also knew that it was like my first year out of graduate school. <laughs> um, but as happenstance goes, before I moved down to Alabama, I met my husband or now husband and um, he had just bought a house and the this was 2008 and we all know the economy just took a huge tumble. And so um, I needed, I wanted to be with him. So I found a job up back in Minnesota at Anoka Ramsey Community College and it was in advising. And I, it, it was, kind of tough with um, a lot of drop in advising. And 
and then um, eventually made my way to the University of Minnesota. But um, yeah, so it's been kind of um, small pockets, I guess, is how I would put it until I got to the University of Minnesota. And I started in College of Liberal Arts. Um, and now I'm in chemical engineering and material science, and I'm almost to 10 years at the U. So that's awesome. I mean, it, it's almost like you're you followed love to where you're at. You know? <laughs> yeah, that's a good way. <laughs> so, yeah, and I I've always told people that um, I what one thing I really like about advising is you welcome repeat business, whereas in student conduct, if you saw the same person again, you're like, oh, it, it didn't stick, did it? <laughs> Yeah, because when I think of student conduct, I'm like, oh, yeah, that's where, you know, someone did something, maybe did something bad, or, you know, you got, got to deal with the consequences. But you were mentioning that you went from uh, liberal arts to, uh, you said chemical sciences? Chemical engineering and material engineering. science. Yep. Yeah. How was it um, being an advisor in liberal, liberal arts, liberal studies, and then also then transitioning to chemical engineering? Yeah. So it's it's been interesting in that a lot of times in liberal arts, I was working with students who were interested in like medical school. And so it was very, it was high achieving students. Um, and then moving over to chemical engineering and material science, it's very, it's also pretty high, <laughs> high achieving students. Um, one of the things that has really struck me is the being in the in the department, I really get to know the students quite well because I'm like their go-to person for two and a half years. And they are so appreciative of what I do. And I think part of it is because sometimes I don't know that their mind thinks the way mine does, being a liberal arts grad and everything. Um, so I think, so that's been kind of uh, in interesting change. And I noticed that right away that the students were just really appreciative of like, that I checked their degree audit report <laughs> consistently. So yeah, and you know, so you're mentioning, you know, mentioned a little bit about being an advisor in chemical engineering. But as a senior academic advisor, what does that what does that mean uh, for you in terms of like, what's your day to day like? Um, it depends on the time of year. So right now I'm meeting with a lot of students who are recently admitted to the program. Um, so I meet with the chemical engineering students in, in the spring after they've been admitted, and then I'll start meeting with the material science students in the fall. With my role as being in a department, um, I do a lot of work also with faculty. So, which has also been helpful in just seeing what they is, um, and the faculty in chemical engineering and material science are very much trying to make sure that the students succeed. And they're also do like, they've gotten a lot more invested in like mental health and becoming mental health advocates, which is a program we have on campus. Um, and so I think that's probably the a big difference between what my role is versus some of my other colleagues at the University of Minnesota is that I do a lot of work with with faculty and like making sure that we're meeting ABET accreditation, which is the accreditation for engineering programs. And um, and also like I do a lot of work with scholarships as well. So I get to give away 
um, close to $300,000 just in our department, which is fantastic to be able to provide that to students. So That's fascinating. <laughs> and being able to do that, you know, and then basically making the students' dreams come true, where then now they can actually use that. And, and I'm assuming the scholarship, they're using it to like pay for their tuition and, mm-hmm. and campus fees and all that. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, we we have some generous alumni in our department, which is wonderful. <laughs> Sounds like <laughs> I'm like, can some of those come to my institution? Yeah. <laughs> and speaking of institutions, you know, you're at University of Minnesota Twin Cities. So if someone wanted to know a little bit more about your institution, how would you describe it? Yeah, so we're a land grant institution. The Twin Cities campus is interesting in that there it was like two schools that basically merged together to form the University of Minnesota Twin Cities Um, and the other probably random fact that people find I always find fascinating about the University of Minnesota is that we um, were created before Minnesota was a state so like the legislator can recommend things but Um, it's kind of up to us. <laughs> and of course, we want to follow it because we need the funds. But but um, I always find that an interesting little factoid to throw in there. Um, so you, it's a, a Big Ten institution. Um, and it's like right in the heart of Minneapolis. And then there's the St. Paul campus, which is very picturesque. And it's near the state fairgrounds. Um, so another fun fact is that we cannot start our school year until after Labor Day because the state fair is so huge in Minnesota. And then with being in Minneapolis and St. Paul, um, there's just a lot of unique opportunities for students because 3M is here, General Mills is here, um, Estee Lauder is around here to us, and um, just, and Cargill. And so there's a lot of like really nice uh, businesses that are right around the uh, campus that students can take advantage of. So. Yeah, a lot of cool little factoids there. <laughs> <laughs> I really love random facts. <laughs> oh, I, I do too. <laughs> and speaking of also working at uh, University of Minnesota Twin Cities, like you also won the John Tate Award in undergraduate advising. And so uh, from what I read, it's you know university staff and faculty who actively participate in academic advising or career development are the ones that are eligible for this award. And um, it's the process they say is very prestigious and competitive. And so nominees must demonstrate an excellence in the core advising skills and methods and look and also being an ally and advocate, cultural navigator, building relationships. How did it feel to win that award? It was amazing. (laughs) I, um, so I, was nominated. I think that was my second time being nominated. And um, it's it's a pretty intense process because we like, I had to find a not or someone nominated me and wrote a pretty long um, letter. And then we also had to find letters of support. And so we found those and I had some students write um, some things that was just heartwarming to hear. And then I also had to write a statement as well. And when I, it was hearing what some of the students wrote and having that read out loud during the ceremony was, I've always loved advising. I've always known this is like the right career for me. But, and then to hear that like a student 
I think she wrote like, I always feel better after I've talked to her than when I got there. And um, it just reiterates the importance of the role that we do and that students notice and they know they they know the work that we put in for them. And so it's it was it was it was an amazing feeling to be recognized for the work that I love doing. Yeah, well, congratulations on that Thank award. You. Yeah. And and yeah, like you're saying, students that they they know and they're they're watching, you know, and they know those that are making a difference, those that care about them. And so mm-hmm. they saw that and probably still see that in you. And so that's an amazing, um, you know, honor to receive that award. And one of the things, too, speaking of advising is, you know, you're also very involved in Nakata. Uh, can you talk about some of the things that you've been involved in, uh, whether it's at the global level or within uh, Region 6? Yeah, so um, I am chair of the Advising Community for Wellbeing and Advisor Retention. Um, and I also, with the help of especially Jake Rudy and um, the other folks on, on the steering committee, um, we started that advising community. So we went through the process of creating it and um, getting the support for it and everything. And we became official in March of 2020. So that was exciting and <laughs> a long process, but um, the end result has been great. And I'm also the um, communications and awards chair for Region 6, which has been um, a lot of fun. And I I am hoping <laughs> to be the chair for Region 6. Uh, we'll see once the elections are done. So and then um, I am also I've also been involved with the membership recruitment and retention committee. One thing with the advising community for well-being and advisor retention that started actually because of region being at the region six conference. So they did the conversation with Nakata leaders and Amy Sands was the president of Nakata at the time. And she was also a for, uh, chair of region six at one point. And so in the meeting, I w- was on the cusp of burnout and I said, you know, I, I just, think Nakata needs to be considering the advisors and we need to retain good advisors and we need to be thinking about their well-being and offering them support. And so she um, wrote, she used to do a Fridays with Nakata column and um, like right before Memorial Day. And I think a lot of people were (laughs) maybe just waiting for the clock to tick to (laughs) when they could leave on Memorial Day. And she wrote that um, we wanted to start this and oh my goodness, did we get a response? So I know other advisors were feeling it. And so it's it's been great to see the support and um, interest and people invested in that community. Yeah. And it's almost, yeah, like you're saying, there, there was a need for it. And then, you know, there was support for it. And then it got created. But a lot of the advising communities, you know, when maybe someone starts as, as a new Nakata member, the advising community is already there, you know. Mm-hmm. So you actually got to kind of go from start to the actual creation of it. How was that, you know, um, in terms of like, how long was that process? Yeah, so that was... When I went to that 
conversations with Nakata leaders. That was in spring of 2018, I believe. And so then that Nakata conference was in Phoenix. And so we were kind of trying to drum up support. Um, so going to sessions that we thought people might be interested in this advising community and, you know, talking to folks. Um, so from 2018 and then in 2019, we were a potential advising community. So we got to participate in the fair and, and that was Louisville. Um, and then we became official in March of 2020. So, which was also very much happenstance with um, a lot of life changing in March of 2020 when the COVID outbreak happened. So. Yeah. And it's almost though like you have to, you know, like you had to put all that work into it, you know, to have those mm -hmm. conversations, to go to these different sessions. And at any point from 2018 to 2020, like, you could have just given up and be like, ah, this is going to be too much, but you followed through with it. And now you have this advising community, which I think is fascinating. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. It was, um, it, it was a lot of work and I've basic, so because of that, I've basically been chair in a way since 2018. So, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it'll, I think it'll be really good for the community. I know um, we have, as far as I know, the slate isn't out yet, but the people I nominated to be chair of it for um, this next cycle, um, it, it, I know it will be in great hands. And um, it's a little weird to think about not being the chair of it, just because I've always been. Right. <laughs> but it'll be great to see um, what someone else can do with it. So. Yeah. And I'm sure you're still going to be some some part of it. You're still going to be uh doing something with the advising community, but yeah, to be doing it from, in a sense, from 2018 to now, and then have someone else come in, that could be a little weird because you've been doing it for so long. Yeah. 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 I mean, they won't get rid of me too easily. I'll still definitely right. be involved. <laughs> <laughs> and what would you say like the goals of the advising community are? So I, we definitely want to try to encourage research and some um, writing with Nakata within um, well-being and advisory retention. So I know Olivia Miller and Liz Sutton and um, CJ, and I can't remember everyone else who's on the research committee, but they have been working hard to just get people aware that like we need to be talking about well-being for advisors. And so there's a lot in like social work and um, healthcare, of course, on um, like well-being for that population. And so it's really like, because we're also in a helping population or profession, we really think there needs to be some discussion about the well-being and retention of our profession as well. We also try to just provide space for people. So, um, with our Munch and Learns, we have Feel Good Fridays. And so every Friday you can just hang out, or not every Friday, every first Friday of the month, you can hang out in a Zoom room. And we might have some um, topics for conversation, but it's basically to provide that space for advisors. Um, I also think thinking about students' well-being is really important too. And so think um, how are we 
creating that space in our advising appointments to um, check on how students are doing. And that can be mental health, but it can also be um, our basic needs met because if those aren't met, then the student's definitely not in a healthy and well place. <laughs> so, um, so those are broadly just some of some of the things we have been trying to to work on within the community. I also think just looking for different resources. Um, so if folks join the listserv, I try to do a monthly newsletter and I always have some article or podcast or something that I highlight as a resource, but there's definitely a lot of other ones out there and um, they're linked on our on our webpage. And you mentioned podcasts. And so I think that's a good transition into something called Nakata Presents, uh, which is the official Nakata uh, podcast series. And so it brings together different advising communities and they kind of have a, a series that, that they'll do for a few episodes. And your advising community has been a part of it. How did that come about? Yeah, that was surprising. <laughs> so uh, Karen Sullivan Vance from the Nakata Executive Office um, mentioned that they had started this series with the first generation advising community. Um, and so I listened to that and um, Quentin Alexander, he did a fantastic job. That was a little intimidating to listen to because, because he, he um, left some big shoes to fill. <laughs> um, so... Yeah, so Karen reached out and asked if we would be interested. And so I took it to the steering committee and there, it was a resounding, yes, let's try this out. So um, so we came up with what we wanted to do with the series. And so the episodes, um, it starts with what is well-being and how do you consider well-being and advising? Um, the second episode is about gratitude, positivity, and toxic positivity, which was... Um, really interesting just in navigating what can sometimes be um, lines in the sand almost of what, when is it gratitude versus when it can become toxic positivity, but also just being mindful of um, yourself and like considering gratitude in your advising practice. Um, we also talk about students and well-being um, DEI and well-being, so diversity, equity, and inclusion work and well-being, and that one is very much advisor-focused. And then we talk about advisor retention and burnout, and then we we wrap up the series by asking, where do we go from here? So um, the people that have been serving on, um, who have been panelists for it, have been fantastic, so... Yeah, and we'll include the link to Nakata Presents in the show notes. And otherwise, if you want to go on Amazon Music or Spotify, you can find it there as well. But a question, I guess, with having this podcast series and, and for uh, your advising community, I guess this, this will kind of be like the selling point. Like w for you, like why is it important or why why should members, uh, Nakata members, check this out? Oh, that's, that's a good <laughs> question. Um, so... And I, I mentioned this in the first episode of this series that like the advising community kind of started out of desperation mm -hmm. in that I was nervous that I might have to find a new a new career, basically. And 
I desperately did not want to because I I do love advising and I think the advising profession it's given me so much and I want to continue to give back to it. And so I think to me people should check it out to start considering or to continue to invest in in themselves and considering their own well-being and maybe figuring out how we can better the profession to really encourage advisors to think about their themselves sometimes, because um, as I kind of alluded to earlier, with advising being very much a helping profession, I think advisors fall into a trap of not not considering their own health and well-being. And to me, um, the fact that we're having this conversation and having and that we have a six um, episode uh, podcast series about well-being tells me um, we really need to be having these conversations and be thinking about advisors and their well-being and how we can retain them. Because um, I also think we desperately want to and need to retain good advisors in this in in this profession. Yeah, I, I agree that a lot of us probably don't really think of ourselves like to take care of ourselves or mm-hmm. we put it off like, oh, I'll, I'll take care of that after this peak season's over. And then the peak season is all year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember this was years ago when my daughter, who is almost seven, um, <laughs> she she was in the infant room at daycare and her teacher um came up to me, you know, when I was picking her up and she's like, and how are you? How was your day? And I like took a step back. And I'm like, oh my gosh, that's like the first time someone's asked me that today. Cause you know, every, like, you know, you have eight appointments in a day and it's, how are you? How's it going? How are classes? What, what can I help you with? And so when she was like, and how are you today? I was like, you know, it's been kind of a tough day. <laughs> but I mean, it's like a simple question, but mm-hmm we don't really think about it that, that often yeah. and to really even like reflect on it. Like, how am I actually doing right now? Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's not to say, you know, as I talked about at the beginning, like students are fantastic and they, um, they notice what we're doing and everything. But um, I always think it's so kind when um, students will take a moment to like send me a little note. That's like, and thanks for thanks for doing that for me. Or um, like one in November, my family all had COVID and I had to reschedule a student appointment. And I explained like my daughter at, at the time, I think I just had to, I thought only Eliana would have it, but then, <laughs> and the student, um, I had emailed saying I, my daughter is sick, so I can't be in. And she wrote back saying like, how are you? How is your family doing? I hope you're all do, like recovering. And I'm like, that was just really sweet of you to think about us and to um, acknowledge the humanness of your advisor. Yeah, that's a great way to put it, the humanness of it. And with these podcast episodes, you you end each episode by asking your guests what they're listening to and, and what they're reading, mm-hmm. uh, which I think is really cool to do. And what what brought that on to ask that question to your guests? Um, so part of it is I'm I enjoy unlocking us with Renee Brown, and she always does um, 
I think she asks for the top five songs on their playlist or something like that. Um, I also think it's nice to, again, kind of the humanness of us as advisors. So like when you're not (laughs) um, advising students, what, what are, what do you enjoy reading and what do you enjoy listening to? So um, I also, I love music. I've played piano pretty much my whole life. (laughs) Um, And we always have um, something playing in the house, whether it's classical or jazz or Taylor Swift radio or whatever. Um, So music is such an important part of my life. And so I always find it interesting to hear what people are listening to or podcasts. (laughs) So I, um, but yeah, so I, I just, I, I just think it kind of gives a, another side to people to know what they're, what they're reading at that moment or what they're listening to. Yeah. And whether it's books or music, I mean, that, that connects us all. And Mm -hmm. when you're mentioning, uh, music being very important for you and, and playing the piano. I just kept thinking about like, Oh, you should talk with Craig McGill. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's all about music and, and piano and all of that. I, um, another advisor on campus in their signature line, they had like my, what I'm listening or my playlist or something like that. Mm-hmm. And so now I send a weekly email to my students and I have just a Google spreadsheet where it's like Casey's playlist. So my, I do a song of the week ah. and that's been so fun because on this, I've had a couple of times where students have said, Oh, you should, you should put this one in. And so um, like, I had some 80s song and a student, um, an international student was, sent me a different version of that song mm. from, I think, South Korea. And so that was my next song of the week. <laughs> um, so it, it was, it's, it's been fun to share that side of myself with them. So. Oh, that's really cool. And see, like I said, music connects everybody. <laughs> yeah. I always wonder what they think when, you know, like, if it's more of a somber song versus like mm. I had like California love by Tupac one week. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess it just depends on the day and how mm-hmm. someone's feeling and, and what, what connects with them, what they want to listen to. Yeah. So it's kind of good having that, that variety of different songs. Yeah. <laughs> now we were talking earlier about the, your advising community and kind of how you're the inaugural chair for that, but also in a way, you were the inaugural first guest of Dane's Desk with Dane Zanowski on our YouTube channel uh, for Adventures and Advising. So that's where Dane does short interviews with advising professionals. And so he, you're the first episode that got posted, and that was on advising philosophies. So can you share your advising philosophy? Oh, boy. Um, it's, it's been a minute since I answered that. Um, So my philosophy always comes from Schlossberg's, whoa, that's a blast from the past, mattering versus marginal, marginality versus mattering. I think that's the title of that theory. Um, I always want students to feel or know that they matter. Um, And 
I that my philosophy has definitely deepened in my resolve to make sure students feel that they matter in the work I've been doing in racial justice and diversity, equity, and inclusion, because I want every student to feel that they belong. And so, um, yeah, that's that's the, the cusp, I would say, of my advising philosophy is um, ensuring that students know that they matter and feel that they matter um, versus feeling marginalized. I also always want to provide compassion and empathy to, to students. Um, and I know that can easily tip into like pity or sympathy, but I want students to know I'm not afraid to go there with them. And so um, I, I'm always mindful of providing that compassion and empathy versus the pity and sympathy of like, oh, that, I'm, I'm sorry you didn't pass that class and, you know, staying like back here instead of like being there with them. And that kind of with that, I would say I'm also careful of like the boundaries, of course, and making sure I don't go into counseling because I'll, I am more than willing to refer students, but, but also boundaries and making sure I, I don't take their issues home with me. And when I was um, in graduate school, it was a counseling-based program. And my one of my professors always used the analogy of like, this is your hook, and she would hold her finger out. And so your hook can carry your issues, it can't carry anyone else's. And I've always thought of that. I maybe didn't always practice it, but um, I, <laughs> around 2018 when everything was kind of happening with the advising community and I was on the cusp of burnout, I started seeing a therapist and she's definitely helped me in understanding those boundaries and and um, still being willing to go there with students, but knowing that I don't need to take that on myself. And, you know, just you saying like, making sure that students know that they matter. I think we've we've kind of heard this advising philosophy throughout this interview. And, you know, you basically are, are living what your advising philosophy is. And and if to kind of now transition towards the end of this interview, uh, one of the things that you're training is for a marathon. Um, how's that going? Um, well, we have a high of six today. So, uh. <laughs> um, I, this will be my third marathon um, this year, and I had—I think in twenty-eight fall of twenty eighteen, I did um, the Twin Cities Marathon, and it was so much fun. It was—I loved every moment of it. And so, I um, the this will be the fortieth running of the Twin Cities Marathon, and so in October they're like first to the forty. You can sign up here now, and I looked at. Aaron and I'm like, I mean, should I do it? And he's like, if you want to. And I'm like, well, I want to. So I think I just have to sign up and start training again. And so, yeah, so it it's running is a great release for me. And it's a way to collect my thoughts and, um, and complete the stress cycle, if you will, um, which is from the book burnout. <laughs> and, and so it's, um, it, it's, it's also just kind of time 
for myself and to, um, we have wonderful trails in the Twin Cities metro area. And so it's been fun to find those. And um, it's also weird sometimes to be driving and be like, oh, I, I, I ran over here just the other day. And, um, but yeah, I'm really looking, I'm looking forward to getting those miles in again, which I, is weird to say, because a 20 mile run on a Saturday is not how a lot of people want to spend their day, but it's, <laughs> it's a lot of fun. And um, I know that some runners are like, oh, I don't listen to music or I don't listen to podcasts while I run. And I do. And it's fun to find the music that kind of gets me a little bit more excited. And yeah, so yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. And to each their own, you know, that if they don't want to listen to music or podcasts, they don't have to. Exactly. <laughs> but if anyone has any questions um, on anything that was said today or have follow up uh, questions or want to get in touch with you, how can how can listeners reach out to you? Yeah, so they can um, send me an email. I'm kgregers, K-G-R-E-G-E-R-S at U-M-N dot E-D-U. Uh, they can also find me on Facebook, um, specifically look for the um, the Facebook group for the advising community for well-being and advisor retention. Um, we we welcome everyone there. So, <laughs> um, yeah, so I, I'd love to follow, follow up with people or if you want to talk more about running, music, reading, or whatever. So. <laughs> Sounds good. Thank you so much, Casey, for, for being on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks for being part of this episode, Casey. You've been doing some wonderful work with the advisor retention advising community. Keep it up. And if you want to check out the wellness series Casey and team have, check out the Nakata Presents podcast. Find it on Spotify and Amazon Music or check the show notes. You'll also find five episodes of Nakata Presents from Dr. Quentin Alexander from George Mason University revolving around first-generation college students. So a little added bonus there. And just like that, episode 52 is complete. Check out our YouTube channel at Adventures in Advising. Subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast platform. And follow us on TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Advising Podcast. And to wrap it up with Maya Angelou being mentioned today, let's end this episode hearing that quote again. I've learned that people will forget what you said. People will forget what you did. But people will never forget how you made them feel. So take care, and I'll be back in a couple of weeks. Keep advising. Don't want a complication, complication.